0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Nostalgic Mystery Radio. I'm your host, Stevie Kay, and it's my honor to bring you the radio shows of yesteryear. For this episode, I bring you Agatha Christie's Hercule Perot, episode titled Three Act Tragedy. We're at an apparently respectable dinner party of Vickers the First to Die. So sit back and relax, and I hope you enjoy this Nostalgic Mystery Radio. Thank you for listening.
1: To reconstruct the crime, that is the aim of the detective. To reconstruct a crime, you must place one fact upon another just as you place one card upon another in building a house of cards. If the facts do not fit, if the cards will not balance, (sighs) you must start your house again, or else it will fall.
2: We present John Moffat as Hercule Poirot and George Cole as Mr. Satterthwaite in Agatha Christie's Three-Act Tragedy.
1: The strange story which I came to regard as a three-act tragedy began at Crow's Nest, a large bungalow perched high up on a cliff above Loomoth. Where the celebrated actor, Sir Charles Cartwright, was giving a weekend party. Two of his guests had already arrived and were sitting on the terrace overlooking the sea.
3: Just a look at him, stumping his way up the fisherman's path, old grey flannel trousers, white sweater, peaked cap, the very model of a retired naval man.
4: <laughs> He's even
3: got the rolling nautical gait. <laughs> it's perfect. Quite perfect. I would never have believed that he'd have stayed down here for so long. In exile, so to speak. Well, no more would I, but he's always been a better actor in private life than on the stage. I've known him since he was a boy. We went up to Oxford together. He's never stopped acting. Not for a moment. Second nature, I suppose, Sir Bartholomew? Yes, Charles doesn't go out of a room. He makes an exit, and he usually gives himself a good line to make it (laughs) on.
4: All the same...
3: He likes a change of part. Yes, but to bury himself down here for two years... To lead a simple life close to the sea That's what he said he wanted. Well, I was like you, Satterthwaite. I didn't think he'd stick it for a week. After all, Charles is only human. He needs his audience. Two or three retired captains, a bunch of old women and a parson. That's not much of a house to play to. No, that's what it seems when we're wrong. Obviously, the attraction of a simple life still holds. You don't think that perhaps there is something else that holds him down here? Mm, somebody else, more like it. No, but here he comes. The last thing we want is for him to think we've been talking about him.
5: You two landlubbers shouldn't be wasting a glorious morning like this sitting on your backsides. You should have been out on the sea with me. <laughs> Mirabelle really surpassed herself.
3: I was watching you from my bedroom window when you set out, and I heartily thanked heaven that I was on dry land.
5: (laughs) Well, you ought to have come, Tolly. Hmm? Don't you spend half your life in Harley Street telling your patients how much fitter they'd feel if they were out on the ocean wave? The eh? great
3: merit of being a doctor is that you're not obliged to follow your own advice. (laughs) Did you go out by yourself?
5: No, no, I, I had a hand.
3: Egg, to be exact. Egg. Hermione Litton-Gore. Usually known for some obscure reason as Egg. She knows quite a bit about sailing, I fancy. She
5: succeeds in making me
3: feel a complete beginner.
5: But I'm coming on. Thanks to Egg. Yes. Thanks to her.
6: Good morning, gentlemen. Ah,
5: good morning, Miss Gorette. Good Garetta. morning, oh, it's rare.
6: This is the menu for dinner. Are there any alterations you would wish to make?
5: Uh, let's have a look at it. Melon cantaloupe, porch, fresh mackerel, grass, souffle surprise... Coop, Diane. Yeah, I think that will do excellently, Miss Mulray. Everyone is coming by the four o'clock train.
6: I have already given Holgate his orders. Uh, by the way, Sir Charles, if you will excuse me, it would be better if I dined with you tonight.
5: Oh, we would all be delighted, Miss Mulray, but uh, otherwise,
6: Sir Charles, it would make 13 at table. And so many people are superstitious.
5: Well, oh, thank you, Miss Mulray. How very far-sighted. It would never have occurred to me.
6: Thank you, Sir Charles.
5: <coughs> that' is a very remarkable woman. I'm always afraid
3: she'll come and brush my teeth for me. (laughs) She's certainly a model of efficiency. Who's coming down this afternoon? Well, Angie, for one. Angela Sutcliffe. But Surely she's in much ado. I finished last week. I thought she was running a risk, taking on Beatrice at her age. Nonsense. Ellen Terry was 59 when she played it at a jubilee. And are the
5: Dakers coming? Well, I trust so. If she can tear herself away from a fashion house... And if he can give up the horses for once in a while. And, uh, and then there's Anthony
3: Astor. The woman who wrote One Way Traffic. Uh-huh. I saw it twice. It was a great hit. And what is his or her real name? Oh, I can never remember. Uh,
5: Mills. Mills, something like that. Wills, I think. I've only met her once. The only reason she's coming is that Angela was curious about her. And the locals? Well, uh, there are the Babingtons. He's the parson. Quite a good fellow. Not too personified. And his wife's a really nice woman, lectures me on gardening. And then there's Lady Mary and Egg, of course. And a young fellow called Manders. He's a journalist or something like that.
3: But with ourselves, that only makes 12. Either you or Miss Milray must have counted wrong.
5: It couldn't be Miss Milray. That woman's never wrong. And you're right. I have missed one guest. A cool Poirot. Slipped my mind completely. (laughs) And he wouldn't care for that. He's a very high opinion of himself.
3: Uh, Do you know him, sir? Yes, I am acquainted with him. Ah, Rather a remarkable character. Mm -hmm. I've (laughs) heard about him, of course. (laughs) I hope we don't have a murder this weekend. Because we've got
5: Poirot in the house. Isn't that rather putting the cart before the horse? eh? No, it's,
3: it's my way of being a theory of mine. And what exactly is that theory? That events come to people. Not people to events. How do you mean? Well, why do some people have exciting lives and other people dull ones?
7: Oh. Hmm?
3: Well, Because of their surroundings? No, not at all. Not at all. One man may travel to the ends of the earth and nothing will happen to him. There'll be a massacre a week before he arrives, an earthquake the day after he leaves, and the boat that he missed will be shipwrecked. But another man may live at Balaam and travel to the city every day and the most extraordinary things will happen to him. They'll be mixed up with blackmailing gangs and beautiful girls and motor bandits. There are people with a tendency to shipwrecks. Even if they take out a boat to an ornamental lake, something will happen to it. In the same way, characters like your Hercule Poirot who don't have to go out of their way to look for crime, it comes to them. Well, in that case, perhaps it's just as well that Miss Milray is joining us for dinner and that we're not going to sit down at a table for 13 Well, you can have your murder,
5: Tolly, if you're so keen on it. I make only one stipulation. That I shan't be the corpse.
1: I had no idea why I had been invited to the weekend party at Crow's Nest. I hardly knew Sir Charles. I had seen him in the theatre, of course, but he was scarcely a close acquaintance. But I accepted the invitation out of curiosity, and because, I must confess... I was feeling a little bored, but I felt ill at ease with the company. They all appeared to know one another so well, yes. and I settled down in a quiet corner with the only person I could yes. claim as an acquaintance, Mr. Sutterthwaite, an amateur detective of some talent and a shrewd observer of things and people.
3: It really is quite impossible to tell what Mrs. Dacre's actually looks like. The greenish-bronze hair, that perfect tan. And surely her lips can't possibly really be that shape. My
8: dear, it wasn't possible. I mean, things either are possible or they are not. This wasn't. It was simply penetrating.
1: (sighs) Penetrating, that is the word of the moment. Everything is penetrating. And the man who looks like the rather scruffy fox. That is the lady's husband, I take it.
3: Captain Dacres, yes.
9: Oh, no, I went to Cap Ferrar. Everyone said I should go there.
1: And who is the lady with the receding chin, dressed in excessively limp green chiffon?
9: But I didn't enjoy it at all. Not what you might call a friendly place.
3: That is Miss Wills the playwright, Anthony Astor.
9: But, of course, it's terribly useful to me in my work to see all the goings-on, you know.
3: Alas, she is not at all
1: like her plays. Anthony Astor gives the impression of being a man of
3: the world. Whereas she looks as though she'd be more at home in a boarding house in Boscombe.
1: (laughs) Mary,
10: at last! Oh, dear... I do hope we're not late.
3: That is Lady Mary Lytton-Gore, such a very charming person, rather fallen upon hard times.
11: You're looking very dapper tonight, Charles.
3: And that is her daughter, Hermione, known as Egg. Egg? How very curious.
1: And who is that exceedingly sleek young man to whom
3: she's talking?
12: Sailing? I gave that up ages ago.
3: Oliver Mander's. A rather aggressive young man, I believe.
12: He's also damn childish, all that messing about in boats. I would have thought you would have grown out of it by now.
1: Oh, good evening, Sir Charles. What a great pleasure. Oh,
12: Lord, here's Babington. Keep talking to me, I can't stand him. Country parsons ought to be put down.
9: Cocktails at
8: last. I'm simply dying for a drink.
9: Cocktail, madam? Well, I think I just might. Thank you. Do you care
6: for a cocktail, sir? Thank you. And you, sir?
1: Thank you. I do not care for the cocktail, but I can hardly demand a sirop.
5: Here you are, egg.
11: Thank you, Charles. You can have one, Mum's. Just one. <laughs> Thank you, dear.
5: I'll get you a sherry, Tolly. I know you can't bear cocktails. Ah, how very considerate, Charles. Oh. Do you care
6: for a cocktail, Mr. Babington? Mm. Oh, thank you. I think my
5: wife would allow me to have one.
6: I, I trust
1: the effects will have worn off by the time I have to deliver my sermon tomorrow. A little stronger than I expected.
11: Mr. Babington, are you all right?
3: Help me get with the sofa.
11: I suppose the poor
1: old chap's never had a cocktail before. No, 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 it cannot be that some kind of seizure perhaps
5: Well, oh, what's happened what's the matter with babington
3: i'm sorry to have to tell you he's dead
1: for a while all was confusion but miss milray showed her customary efficiency on the telephone
6: dr Macdougall, i think you would better come up to crow's nest immediately one of sir charles's guests appears to have been taken seriously ill
1: Lady Mary had led the weeping Mrs. Babington out of the room and had finally gone home with her to the vicarage.
6: I think that under the circumstances, Sir Charles, it might be better if we were to serve a simplified form of dinner.
1: Mm, Of course, of course,
5: Miss Millorand, whatever you think best.
1: Oliver Manders drove Egg back home to her mother's house and by mutual consent the rest of the house party retired to their rooms when dinner was over.
3: Charles doesn't like it. Poor old Babington's death. I mean, it was very distressing. Very distressing indeed. Uh, I have an idea. He thinks it was rather more than that. He wants us to join him for a conference in the ship room. Ever see anyone die quite like that before, Tolly? No, no, I can't say I have. But I haven't really seen as many deaths as you might suppose. A nerve specialist doesn't kill off great quantities of his patients. <laughs> he keeps them alive and makes his money out of them. What does Dr McDougall think?
5: Oh, he said it was some kind of seizure. The Babington was elderly and his health none too good. But he didn't see the man die. It doesn't satisfy me.
3: Mm. Probably didn't satisfy him. But a doctor has to say something. After all, Babington was elderly and not in the best of health. Mm. Well, was it a typical fit? Or seizure? Or whatever you call it? Well, if you'd ever studied medicine, you'd know there is hardly such a thing as a typical case. What precisely are you suggesting, Charles? Now, Charles doesn't know himself. His mind's turning to the dramatic possibilities. Damn it all, Tolly. This man dropped dead in my house. Yeah, so what are you suggesting? Some untraceable poison in the cocktails? No, hardly that. After all, I mix them. Well, perhaps you had a sudden fit of homicidal mania. Yeah, I suppose the symptoms are delayed in our case and we'll all be dead in the morning. Why do you have to make a joke of it all, Tolly? I'm, I'm not really joking. I, I just don't want you quite thoughtlessly to do harm. Harm? Don't you see the danger? These these vague suspicions of yours might cause A suggestion of foul play, uh, totally unfounded Might cause serious trouble and pain to Mrs. Babington Rumours flying about all over the place that no one can stop I must admit, I
5: hadn't thought of it like that, Tolly but, but it wasn't just my dramatic instinct taking over I really do have a hunch that something is
3: wrong May I make a suggestion? Yes Nothing has been touched in here since Mr. Babington's death The cocktail glasses are exactly where they were This one here is Mr. Babington's. I saw him put it down on the table just before he collapsed. I suggest that Sir Bartholomew should get the contents analysed. That can be done quietly and without causing any talk. Oh, very well. Will that satisfy you, Charles? Well,
5: of course. But you know, Charlie, you are partly responsible for my flight of fancy. What do you mean by that? Because of what you said this morning about Hercule Poirot that he was a kind of stormy petrol, and where he went, sudden death followed. No sooner does he arrive than somebody drops dead on the carpet. Are you surprised if my thoughts fly immediately after murder? I wonder whether we could... uh... Yes, I had thought of that. Could we ask him what
3: he thinks of it all? You mean, is it etiquette? Ah. I do know that you can't ask a professional singer to sing. Can one ask a professional detective to detect? Come in.
5: I
1: hope I am not uh, intruding Sir Charles.
5: Not at all. Uh, do come in. Uh, t- take a seat. Uh, we were just talking about you. Uh, may I offer you a drink? Oh, thank you, but no, I do not touch the whiskey. Very well. I'm not going to beat about the bush. We've been talking about what happened this evening.
3: D- do you think there's anything wrong about it? Wrong? Hmm. Oh, what exactly do you mean, by that? Our friends got it into his head that Mr. Babington was murdered. And you do not think so? We'd like to know what you think. Well, and she was, of course, taken ill very suddenly. We have the glass from which Mr. Babington drank, and there's still some liquid remaining in it. Should we at least get it analysed? Well, that at any rate can do no harm.
1: As a judge of human nature, it seems to me unlikely in the extreme that anyone would wish to do away with that charming old clergyman.
5: Mm.
1: However... The cocktail glass will tell us one way or another.
5: And the result of the analysis will be what?
1: Hmm? You are asking me to guess the result of the analysis? Yes. Oh, then I can only predict they will find nothing but the remains of an excellent Rimartini. martini. <laughs> to poison a man with a cocktail, one of many handed around in a tray, would be very difficult. How could one be certain he would take the right glass? True. And that, since you asked me, gentlemen, is my opinion. It seems to me most unlikely that anyone could be murdered under those circumstances. But let us await the results of the analysis.
11: So what did you make of the inquest, Mrs. Satterthwaite?
3: I suppose it was rather what I anticipated.
11: But did you really go along with what Dr. MacDougall said? Well, I... Didn't you think that behind all that frightful technical stuff he was just hedging... What he said was there was nothing to show that death hadn't arisen from natural causes. He didn't say that it was the result of natural causes.
3: Aren't you rather splitting hairs, my dear? After all, nothing was found in Mr. Babington's glass but a gin and vermouth.
11: But the only thing wrong with Mr. Babington was that he had a touch of rheumatoid arthritis. That doesn't make you fall down in a fit. He was the sort of creaking gate that would have lived to be 90.
3: But, my dear, who on earth would want to murder him?
11: Mm, That's what Oliver keeps on saying.
3: Oliver Manders. Isn't he rather a particular friend of yours?
11: He used to be. Now we scrap all the time. He's gone into his uncle's office in the city and he's getting... well, a bit oily, if you know what I mean. He's obsessed with getting rich. I think everybody is rather disgusting about money, don't you, Mr Satterthwaite?
3: My dear, so many people are disgusting about so many things.
11: Poor Mr Babington. He really was rather a pet. He prepared me for confirmation and all that... It's all bunkum, of course, but he really was very sweet about it. That's why I feel I can't go along with all that natural causes stuff. What if someone jammed him with a hypodermic?
3: Containing the untraceable poison of a lost tribe of Amazonian Indians?
11: You may laugh, but someday perhaps you'll find we're right.
3: We? Oui.
11: Sir Charles and I. Why hasn't he ever married?
3: Sir Charles? Well, I have no idea.
11: That girl who died of consumption, or some actress or other, her name began with M. Wasn't he supposed to be in love with her?
3: Well, I, I hardly think
11: I suppose he's had lots of affairs. Um,
3: uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yes, pro- probably.
11: I like men to have affairs. It shows they're not queer or anything. Um. <laughs> you know, Sir Charles is really much cleverer than you think. He dramatises himself a bit, but behind all that, he's got brains. He's far better at sailing a boat than you'd ever believe to hear him talk. I know you think the only reason he's so interested in Mr. Babington's death is because he wants to play the part of the great detective. All I can say is I think he'd do it rather well. Possibly. But your view is that death of a clergyman isn't a thriller, merely a social catastrophe. What did Monsieur Poirot think? He ought to know. Well,
3: He didn't seem to think there was anything at all suspicious about Babington's death.
11: Oh. Well, he's getting old. He's just a back number. Come home and have tea with Mother. She likes you, she said so.
3: I really should be getting back to Sir Charles.
11: Oh, don't worry about that. I'll ring him up and explain. And you can have a good chat with Mother. I
10: like Sir Charles very much. Success hasn't spoiled him. In many ways, he's a child still, and such charm. I feel it as well as egg. I suppose you've noticed she's suffering badly from hero worship.
3: Well, I could hardly help... she's
10: seen so little of the world. We're so badly off. One of my cousins presented her and took her to a few things in town, but most of the time she's been stuck down here. Sir Charles coming to Lumeth has done a lot for her. There are so few young people here, especially men. I've always been afraid that Egg might marry someone simply because he was the only person around.
3: Are you by any chance thinking of Oliver Manders?
10: How very perceptive of you, Mr. Satterthwaite. He and Egg were always together at one time. I know I'm old-fashioned, but... I really do not care for some of his advanced ideas. The
3: youth must have its fling. It
10: would be quite a suitable match, of course. Manda's uncle has recently taken him into the firm, and he's a very rich man. Still, I suppose it's very silly of me, but... All the
3: same, Lady Mary. You wouldn't like Egg to marry a man twice her age. It might be safer, you
10: know. At that age, a man's follies and sins is
11: definitely behind him. I'm sorry I've been such ages, but I've been talking to Sir Charles. He's all alone up there. You didn't tell me the house party had flitted.
3: Oh, yes. Most of them went back yesterday. All but Sir Bartholomew Strange. He had intended to stay on till tomorrow, but he had an urgent telegram from London this morning. One of his patients has taken a turn for the worse.
11: It's rather a nuisance they're all going off like that. I wanted to take a closer look at them all. One of them might have given me a clue. A clue to what, darling? I've arranged to go up there after dinner and take Oliver with me. We can talk the whole mystery through. If we all put our heads together, you never know what we might come up with.
1: But the discussion, it seems, was not a great success.
12: Oliver Mandos was lazily sceptical. Can't you talk Egg out of this nonsense, Sir Charles? Huh? But it's this appallingly healthy country life she leads that makes her so energetic. What on earth do you mean by that? You're becoming so detestably hearty. And you really are being quite remarkably childish over this murder business. (sighs) It's rubbish. Utter rubbish. Do you really believe that, Manders? Well, no question of it. That dear, bleating old clergyman. He wasn't worth murdering. It's fantastic to think of anything but natural causes. You for a nightcap, Sabbathway? Uh, No, I don't think so, thanks. Don't mind if I have one, I
5: trust? No. Ah, Thank God they've gone. I couldn't bear to be in the same room any longer. I'm leaving here tomorrow, for good. What on earth are you talking about? It's the only thing to do. I shall put this place on the market. What it has meant to me, no one will ever know. But why? Did you see them as they went down the path in the moonlight? Egg turned her face to that Manders fellow and he kissed her. They're made for each other, those two. Cut your losses. It's the only way I shall clear out. Where to? What does it matter? In the heat of the desert or the heart of the crowd, I've always been a solitary soul. I should probably go to Monte Carlo. But don't cut your visit here short, my dear fellow. Stay on another day or two and I'll tell Miss Millray to arrange for a car to take you over to your friends at Tavistock. But as for me, I shall leave first thing in the morning. I mustn't look back. That would be fatal. Never
1: look back. Sir Charles was as good as his word. He departed the following morning by the first train. Leaving the capable Miss Milray to telephone estate agents and to dispatch cables abroad. He told no one. He was playing a role he had acted many times in the theatre that of the strong, silent man who renounces the girl he loves for her own good.
11: But where's he gone?
3: Abroad, to the south of France, I think.
11: Oh. Which of those damn bitches is it? What did you say? One of those two women who were up there the other night must have seen the way Charles and I were looking at one another and decided to get him away from me. Was it the one with the green hair and all those wonderful clothes? Or the grey-haired one he called Angie? The one with lots of essay. Essay? Sex appeal. Ah. Which of them was it?
3: My dear, you're quite mistaken. He isn't in the least interested in either of them.
11: Then why has he gone away without telling me?
3: Well, I rather think he thought it best.
11: Do you mean it's because of me?
3: Well, something of the sort, perhaps.
11: Oh, I suppose I did show my hand a bit too plainly. Men do so hate being chased, don't they?
3: I rather think it was more to do with Oliver Manders.
11: You mean that Charles saw me do my kissing act last night?
3: Well, as a matter of fact, he did.
11: But that was only because I thought he needed a bit of encouraging. I thought perhaps if he saw me and Oliver, well, it might wake him up a bit.
3: Wasn't that a little unfair on Oliver?
11: (sighs) Not in the least. He thinks it's an honor for any girl to be kissed by him. I expect I've made him feel more conceited than ever, but one can't think of everything. I simply wanted to ginger Charles up a bit. He's been so standoffish lately.
3: I'm afraid it did not have quite the effect you intended. Sir Charles got the impression that you were passionately in love with Oliver Manders. He went away to spare himself further pain.
9: Is that really true?
11: Oh, the idiot. The sainted idiot. But if that is really why he went away, he'll come back. And if he doesn't... If he doesn't? I'll... Get him back somehow. You see if I don't.
1: And so, as Sir Charles sped southwards across France on the train bleu, the first act of our tragedy came to an end. But fool that I was, I did not see it as a tragedy at all. Merely the sudden death from natural causes of a lovable old clergyman events were to prove me disastrously wrong. The second act of our tragedy began peacefully enough. I had taken myself for a few days to the French Riviera and was sitting in the public gardens at Monte Carlo, doing nothing in particular, watching a bored little child tugging at his mother's sleeve.
11: Mommy, isn't there anything to do? Darling, isn't it enough to have come abroad and be in the beautiful sunshine? Oh, it isn't. There's nothing to
3: do. Monsieur Poirot, what a very pleasant surprise to find you in Monte Carlo.
1: Mr. Satterthwaite. oh, I am delighted to see you. Please,
3: sit down, I beg you. Oh, thank you. You know, everyone seems to be here. Not half an hour ago, I ran across Sir Charles Cartwright. Sir Charles, what a curious coincidence.
1: It was at his house in Devon that we last met, was it not? He's given it up now. Huh? Given it up?
3: How very surprising. I don't know whether it's all that surprising. Sir Charles is not really the kind of man who likes to live permanently away from the world. Mm, yes, that is very true, but I am surprised for another reason. It seemed to
1: me that Sir Charles had a different motive for staying at Lumos. A very charming motive, am I not right? Mm. The little demoiselle who calls herself so amusingly the egg. Hermione Gore. Mm.
3: So you noticed that, did you?
1: <laughs> it leaped to the eye. And I have the heart very susceptible to lovers. You too, I think. And La Jeunesse, it is always touching.
3: She is the reason why Sir Charles left Lumeth. He was running away.
1: But from mademoiselle Egg? Mm. But it was obvious that he adored her. Why should he run? Uh, I'm afraid you don't quite understand our Anglo-Saxon complexes. Mm, Of course, it is a very good tactic. Run from a woman and immediately she follows. Doubtless a man of much experience like Sir Charles knows that. I don't think it was actually quite like that. But what are you doing here, Monsieur Poirot? Taking a holiday? Oh, my time is all holidays now. I have achieved all that I wish to do. And now I'll retire. Je m'amuse. Mommy! Play with me! i You see, Mr. Satterthwaite, when I was a boy, I was poor. We were a large family and I had to get on in the world. I entered the police force. I worked hard. I began to make a name for myself. I acquired an international reputation. At last, I was due to retire. Then came the war. I was injured. I came a sad and weary refugee to England. A kind lady gave me hospitality. She died. Not naturally, no. She was killed. And so I set
3: my wits to work. I employed the little gray cells. I discovered the murder. Adam. Ah, you're speaking of the mysterious affair at Styles Court. Oh, ho, ho. I
1: am flattered that you remember the case, <laughs> Mr. Sattlethwaite. It was that experience that made me realize I was not yet finished. My powers were, in fact, stronger than ever. Then began my second career, that of a private inquiry agent in your country. I have solved many fascinating and baffling problems. The psychology of human nature. It is wonderful. I began to grow rich. Someday I said to myself, I will have all the money I need. I will realize all my dreams.
11: Why won't you play with
1: me? My friend, beware of the day when your dreams come true. That child over there, doubtless he too has dreamed of coming abroad, of how different
3: everything would be. You understand? I understand you are not amusing yourself. Exactly. Have you seen this, Monsieur Poirot, in the morning paper? Mm-hmm. This uh, paragraph here. It is with great
1: regret that we announce the death of Sir Bartholomew Strange. Oh, this is the rather distinguished gentleman who was at Sir Charles's house party, the one he called Tully. Yes, but read on, Monsieur Poirot. Sir Bartholomew was entertaining a party of friends at Melfort Abbey, his house in New Yorkshire. He appeared to be in perfect health and spirits, and his demise occurred quite suddenly at the end of dinner. He was chatting with his friends and drinking a glass of port when he had a sudden seizure and died almost instantaneously. Hmm. It is very similar to the way in which that old clergyman died. A quite remarkable coincidence. I think it's
3: more than that, Monsieur Poirot. And Sir Charles is certain that there is a connection between the two deaths. He has gone to the offices of the vargon Lee company to book tickets for him and myself on the night train to London. Oh, what zeal he
1: has, such Charles, so determined to play the role of the amateur detective. Or is there another reason?
3: Well, as it happens, he had just received a letter from Miss Lytton-Gore. I was with him when it was delivered.
5: It's an appeal for help. She's begging me to return. Is this the first letter you've had from her? No, no, I, I, I have one just after I got here, just giving me the local news and all that. I didn't answer it, of course. Didn't dare to. The girl had no idea why I had gone away, and I didn't want to make a fool of myself.
3: And are you going to reply
5: to this one? Damn it, man, this is different. She was there at Melford Abbey when it happened, when poor Tolly suddenly keeled over. Here, read it for yourself. Mm. The poor kid's obviously in a bit of a state.
11: You'll have seen by now, I expect, that Sir Bartholomew Strange is dead. Well, he died just the same way as Mr. Babington. It can't be coincidence. I'm worried to death. Couldn't you come home and do something? You see, I'm very concerned about someone. He had absolutely nothing to do with it, but things might look a bit odd. I can't explain it in a letter, but won't you come back? After all... It's your own friend who's been killed, and if you don't take a hand in it, perhaps no one will ever find out the truth. And I'm sure you could. I know it in my bones.
3: Who do you think she means by someone? Manders, I suppose. Was he there, then? Well, he
5: must have been. I can't imagine why. Tolly never met him except on that one occasion at my house. Why
3: he should ask him to stay, I cannot imagine. Well, we can easily settle that. There must have been some mention of the party in the society columns of one of the papers before all this happened. Oh, well, there's a stack of them over there. Oh. Did Sir Bartholomew often give these house parties?
5: Three or four times a year. This one would have been for the St. Ledger.
3: Did he spend much of his time
5: in Yorkshire? He had a big sanatorium, a nursing home, whatever you like to call it, in bought Melford Abbey, restored it, and built a sanatorium in the grounds. I found it.
3: good lord. What's the matter? Nearly all the people at the house party were the same ones that were at yours. Who? Lady Lytton-Gore and Egg, Captain and Mrs. Dakers, Angela Sutcliffe, Muriel Wills. But no mention of Mr. Mendes. No. But you must admit the guest list stretches coincidence a bit far. Yes, it is curious.
1: And you are going back with Sir Charles?
3: Well, this sort of thing is rather in my line, Miss Hillborough.
1: Ah, yes. <laughs> your experiences with the mysterious Mr. Quinn. Mm. And I do happen to know the Chief Constable in that part of the world quite well. Tell me, Mr. Southathwaite, why did you not mention the matter of
3: Sir Bartholomew's death as soon as you sat down here? Oh, it didn't seem quite the moment at first. And then I had no wish to disturb your fascinating reminiscences. You, you, you yourself are not, uh, not tempted to come back and take an interest in the case? Oh, I think not. I am too old to rush
1: backwards and forwards. And the Mediterranean, it is such a beautiful bloom.
3: Then I will leave you to enjoy it. But should you wish to call on me in London, here is my card to remind you of my address.
1: I remained where I was for a quarter of an hour or so. But it seemed that the Mediterranean was no longer as blue as it had been.
11: I've done that, Mummy. What shall I do next?
1: It was a good question. I thought that perhaps it was time for me to take a walk to the Waggon-Lee offices, but I was going to take my time. I had no wish to interfere in the investigation of the admirable Sir Charles and the meticulous Mr. Sutterthwaite
4: delighted to meet you sir charles uh, my wife is a very keen playgoer she's one of your greatest fans of the American say well i'm very honored colonel i gather that sir bartholomew strange was by way of being a friend of yours a very old friend he was very popular around here of course ah. last man in the world you'd expect to be murdered but murder is what it looks like sir charles and i've only just come back from abroad We've only seen
3: snippets here and there in the papers.
4: Ah, well, let me tell you exactly how the matter stands. There's little doubt that the butlers the man were after, a chap by the name of Ellis, he was a new man, strange had only had him a fortnight, and the moment after the murder, he disappears, vanishes into thin air. Looks a bit fishy, huh? You've no notion where he went. <laughs> Negligence on our part, you think? Well, ah. I admit it, Danville looks like it. The fellow answered all our questions quite satisfactorily, Gave the name of the London agency which obtained him the place. All very civil-spoken, no signs of panic. Next thing, he'd gone, and the house was still under observation. Quite extraordinary. Now, apart from anything
5: else, it seems a damn fool thing to do. I mean, why do a bolt and draw attention to himself if he
4: wasn't suspected? No. Lost his nerve. Got the wind up. Have you verified the account he gave of himself? Naturally. London agency confirms his story. He had a reference from Sir Horace Byrd recommending him warmly. Trouble is, Sir Horace is in South Africa at the moment. So the reference could have been forged, huh? Exactly. We've wired Sir Horace, but it may be some time before we get a reply. Apparently he's on safari. When exactly did the butler disappear? Sometime during the night after the murder. He went to his room after we talked to him, and the following morning he was missing. His bed hadn't been slept in. One of the ladies staying at the abbey Miss. Sutcliffe, the actress. Well, you know I expect, Sir Charles. Oh, very well indeed, yeah. Uh Aha. Well, she suggested that the man had left the house by way of a secret passage. Sounds a bit Edgar Wallace, but it seems there really was such a thing. Strange was rather proud of it. I understand that Sir Bartholomew died of nicotine poisoning. That's right. Most unusual stuff to use. Though I understand that if a man's a heavy smoker, such as Strange was, it would tend to complicate matters. I mean, he might have died of nicotine poisoning in a natural way. Only, of course, this business was too sudden for that. How was it administered? We don't know that yet. According to the medical evidence, it could only have been swallowed a few minutes previous to death. I understand they were drinking port. Mm Mm-hmm. And you'd expect the stuff to be in the port, but it wasn't. That glass contained nothing but port. You see, Satterthwaite, it's the same. Exactly the same as before. You're talking about the old clergyman who dropped dead at your house, Sir Charles. How the devil did you get to hear of that? From a very charming young lady, Miss Lytton-Gore. She's gone back to Devon now. She was adamant there was some kind of link between the two cases. But I don't believe there's anything in it. It doesn't explain the flight of the butler, and you can depend on it. He is our man. Very likely he'll turn out to be a regular criminal. Unfortunately, we haven't got any fingerprints. We had an expert go over his bedroom and the butler's pantry, but had no luck. But if it was the butler, what motive could he have had? That, of course, is one of our difficulties. (coughs) Strange might have caught him stealing or something of the sort. Was anything actually
5: missing from the house? Silver? Jewelry? Anything like that?
4: Uh, Nothing. At least not as far as we know. Who actually was staying in the house? We'll get Superintendent Crossfield in. He's the chap to give you all the details. Very reliable and most methodical. It's a very odd case
13: indeed. I've never come across nicotine poisoning before. I thought it was the kind of disease you got from smoking too much. To tell the truth, sir, so did I. But the doctor says it's an odourless liquid, pure alkaloid, and that a few drops of it are enough to kill a man almost instantly. Pretty potent stuff. And yet it's in pretty common use. They use nicotine solution for spraying roses. Roses? Roses? Now, why should that ring a bell? Anything fresh to report, Grosfield? Oh, nothing definite, sir. We've had sightings of Ellis all over England. Durham, Ipswich, Ballham. Mind you, the moment a man's description is circulated, people see him everywhere. What exactly is the man's description? John Ellis. Medium height, stoops slightly, grey hair, small side whiskers, dark eyes, husky voice... Tooth missing in upper jaw, noticeable
5: when he smiles. Very nondescript. Bar the side whiskers and the tooth. And the first will be off by now, and he'll be taking care not to smile.
4: Can you tell us who exactly was in Stranger's party on the night of the crime, Crossfield?
13: Uh, Lord and Lady Eden, uh, Sir Jocelyn and Lady Campbell, Miss Angela Sutcliffe, Mm. Captain and Mrs. Dakers... Lady Mary and Miss Hermione Lytton-Gore, Miss Muriel Wills, Mr Oliver Manders. The reports didn't mention Miss Wills, but I suppose they wouldn't. And young Manders was there, after all. He wasn't one of the invited guests, I gather. The young gentleman ran his motorbike into the wall not far from the abbey gates. Sir Bartholomew, who was, I understand, slightly acquainted with him, asked him to stay the night. Rather a careless thing for the boy to do. I fancy the young gentleman must have had one over the eight. Uh-huh. I can't imagine how he could have managed to hit the wall the way he did if he was sober.
5: Well, uh, thank you very much, Superintendent. Yeah, any objection to our going over to have a look round the abbey, Colonel?
4: Of course not, Sir Charles. Though I doubt whether you'll find out anything I haven't already told you. Poor old Tolly certainly
5: made a good job of patching up the old abbey.
3: Magnificent, don't you think?
5: Well, it must have cost him a pretty penny. Uh-huh.
3: So, what do you think?
5: Was it the butler? Of course it wasn't the butler. He's a red herring. He couldn't have had anything to do with old Babington's death.
3: You're still convinced the two deaths are connected? They must be. Why
5: were all the people who were at my place present at the second murder? It was a plan. Tolly's plan. You mean he invited them all up here deliberately? I'm certain of it. Well, we'd better be getting along to the house. You didn't know Tolly as well as I did. He kept his own counsel and was a very patient man.
3: But he thought the whole idea that, that Babington had been murdered
5: was ridiculous. Well, he may have said so, but I reckon he had suspicions of his own. He didn't talk about them, that wasn't his way. But quietly, in his own mind, he was building up a case... He knew that one of my guests was responsible for the crime
3: and he gathered them all up here for some kind of test. But what about the people who weren't at your party? The Edens and the Campbells?
5: Camouflage, a to make the whole thing less obvious. Well, what do you think that his plan was? Well, how can we know? I'm not a magician. But there was a plan and it went wrong because the murderer was one degree cleverer than Tolly reckoned and he struck first. He? Or she? Poison is as much a woman's weapon as it is a man's, more so. But there were certain people who who weren't invited. Well, I was in France, so were you. And he could hardly have invited poor old Babington's widow. And I suppose young Manders is out of it, too. He only arrived by accident. If that's what it was. And I can't really believe that the Lytton gauze had anything to do with Babington's death. What about Angela Sutcliffe? Angela? She's been a friend of Tolly's for years. So that leaves us with the Dakers. Well, I suppose they're more possible than anyone else. <sighs> but for the life of me, I can't see why Freddie Dakers, who spends his life on the race course, or Cynthia, who makes a packet designing fabulously expensive clothes for women with more money than cents, should have any desire to remove a dear,
3: insignificant old clergyman. We've forgotten someone else. Huh? That writer-woman who calls herself Anthony Astor. Miss Muriel Wills of Tooting.
5: What is there about her that continually makes one forget her? She's the most
3: damnably nondescript woman I've ever met. I fancy she might embody that line of Robert Burns, a child's among ye taking notes. I imagine Miss Wills spends much of her time taking notes. There are sharp eyes behind those unflattering glasses of hers. I think you'll find that anything worth noticing in this affair has already been noticed by Miss Wills. Really? Well, while we're here, we'd better have a word with the
5: housekeeper. What did Crossfield say her name was?
3: Leckie. Mrs. Leckie.
14: Oh, that I should ever have lived to see such a thing. (laughs) Such a proud day it was for all of us when the doctor was made Sir Bartholomew. And the questions the policeman asked about all the maids in the house. Good girls they are. Every one of them. And no police superintendent shall make me say otherwise. When as to having anything to do with murder... This man well, Ellis,
5: uh, did you find anything unusual about him?
14: Well, I did and I didn't. See, for one thing, he was standoffish. He kept himself to himself. Spent a lot of time in his own room and he was... Well, there was something.
3: You did not suspect that he was not really a butler?
14: Oh, no, sir. He'd been in service all right. The things he knew. And about the best people in society, too. But he wasn't like any butler I've ever worked with before. He arranged the work differently. And
5: what did Sir Bartholomew think
14: of him? Oh, he was pleased enough. He even had a bit of a joke with him. But what did he say? Well, Mr Ellis come up with a telephone message, and Sir Bartholomew asked him if he'd got the name right. And Mr Ellis said, quite sure. Oh, speaking respectful, of course.
5: Go on, Mrs Lecky.
14: Well, Sir Bartholomew laughed and said, you're a good fellow, Ellis, a first-class butler. Don't you agree, Mrs Lecky?" And I was so surprised, sir, at the master speaking like that, that, well, I didn't know what to think.
5: Uh, what was the telephone message? Can you remember?
14: It was from the sanatorium. About a patient who had just arrived there and who'd stood the journey well.
5: Do you remember the name?
14: Ah, yeah, oh, it was a queer name, sir. Um, a Mrs. de Rushbridger. Well, something like that.
3: Ah, it's yes, not an easy name to get right on the telephone. And what about the guests? Did you notice anything
14: unusual about their behaviour? Oh, well, sir, that Miss Wills, she wasn't quite the class of the others. Well, she did things a real lady wouldn't have done. Poked and pried about. That's not a nice thing to do, not after somebody's dead. And poor Miss Sutcliffe. She quite broke down. Very warm-hearted lady. And Mrs. Dacres? I don't think anything would upset her much. She was just anxious to get away. Said her business would suffer.
3: What about her husband?
14: Steadied his nerves with brandy, Or unsteadied them, some would say.
3: And do you have any views on who might have poisoned your master,
14: Mrs. Lecky? Well, I suppose it must have been Mr Ellis, seeing the way he just vanished overnight. But I don't see how he could have done it. They're saying it was something in the port. But all the gentlemen had port, and some of the ladies. And in any case, they couldn't find anything in the glass.
5: Thank you, Mrs Lecky. you've been very helpful. <laughs> now, uh, would you mind if we took a look at Mr Ellis's room?
14: Oh, no, sir, I have no objection. Of course, the police have been all over it, but they couldn't find a thing.
5: So what do you think, Salathwaite?
3: The only thing... Yeah? Go on, man. It struck me as a little odd the way Sir Bartholomew joked with his butler. It seemed somehow so uncharacteristic. It was
5: uncharacteristic. I knew Tolly well, better than you did, and I can tell you he wasn't a facetious sort of man. But where does it get us? What is curious is that it occurred immediately after that telephone message. About the patient who had arrived at the sanatorium? Yes. And I think it's a fair deduction to assume it was that telephone message which was the cause of Tolly's sudden hilarity. I can't imagine what it could have been, but I'm certain there must be some significance in that message. Something tells me that this
3: Mrs. de Rushbridger may have something to do with the mystery. Well, I can't say I think it's very likely. But uh, this must be Ellis's room. We'll find something here that the police passed over.
5: Of course, they were looking for evidence of Ellis's guilt. We're looking for evidence of his innocence. A very different matter.
3: There doesn't seem to be much in the way of evidence of any kind. Boots neatly polished, a couple of extremely well-cut suits. Somebody's cast-off, perhaps, given to him in his various situations. There is one thing that is rather puzzling. No sign at all of his butler's kit. Ah. So he must have been wearing it when he did his vanishing act. Any man in his senses would have changed into an ordinary suit.
5: Yes, it is rather odd. Almost as if he hadn't gone at all. No letters, no papers. Ah, a cutting about a cure for corns. A bottle of ink, no pen. And it doesn't look as if the blotter's going to tell us much. You
3: know, it doesn't look as if he's used it at all.
5: That's rather odd, don't you think?
3: Well, how do you mean? Well, chap usually writes letters. Well, not if he's a criminal. Well, there's a splash of ink by the fireplace. ...could be quite recent. Oh, let me see. It looks as if he dropped his fountain pen. But why should he drop it by the gas fire? No,
5: perhaps he threw it across the room. Fountain pens can be damned irritating. What if... Ed? Eh? What if he was burning papers? Something like that. Well, you don't burn papers on a gas fire. Hmm. But he might have been writing something at the table... ...and
3: suddenly heard somebody coming. The police, perhaps? Yes. And he rushes over and shoves the papers under the gas fire and drops the fountain pen while he's doing it. Sounds a bit far-fetched. Well, why don't we see if there's anything behind the fire?
5: Right, I'll give it a try. Yes, there is something there, I think. Something white. yo, but I can't get at it.
3: We want something like a woman's hat pin. Well, we're not likely to find one in here. Well, there's a paper knife on the table. Here, see if we can get it with that.
5: Ah, thanks. Yep. It's coming. Got it. Looks as though you were right, Satterthwaite. Sheets of crumpled writing paper.
3: Here. They seem to be drafts of the same letter. Listen to this. This is to say that the writer of this letter does not wish to cause unpleasantness about what he saw tonight. He gave that up and tried again. John Ellis Butler has certain facts concerning Sir Bartholomew's death in his possession. He has not yet given these facts to the police. And yet again. Again. I know how Sir Bartholomew died. I haven't said anything to the police. If you will meet me... And it breaks off there. Presumably that was when he heard somebody coming.
5: Hmm.
3: Well, it doesn't get us very far.
5: If the fellow had only headed his effusions, sir or madam, it would have helped a bit.
3: At least one thing is clear. Ellis may have been a scoundrel, but he didn't murder Sir Bartholomew. Was that why he slipped out in his butler's clothes? To meet
5: the murderer? I imagine he was paid to disappear. I'm beginning to have a nasty suspicion that poor Ellis may well have disappeared for good. The man he went out to meet had already killed, twice. And will probably have no compunction about doing so again. So we may now be faced with a third murder. Come on, Satterthwaite, let's get out of this room. It's beginning to give me the shivers.
1: Sir Charles and his friend Mr. Satterthwaite had returned from their investigations at Melfort Abbey, the home of Sir Bartholomew Strange. Sir Charles knew that he could no longer avoid meeting the young woman with whom he had fallen in love and had fled to France to escape, Hermione Litton-Gore, known, very curiously, to her friends as Egg.
5: She can't very well come round here to my flat. Her mother mightn't like it. And I'd prefer
3: to meet her at a restaurant. With you, of course, Satterthwaite. Well, I'd be delighted. And then, if we wanted to discuss our investigations more privately, we could adjourn to my house.
11: I knew you'd find out what really happened. That butler. Ellis? Obviously, he was killed because he knew too much.
3: But if that's the case, where is the body?
11: What about the secret passage? Miss Sutcliffe told me about it. The killer gave Ellis blackmail money and showed him how he could get out of the house without anyone seeing him, and then followed him down there and killed him.
5: There is one rather curious thing we couldn't get to the bottom of. According to the housekeeper, the night before the murder, Ellis took a telephone call about a Mrs. De Rushbridger. Tolly made rather a joke about it, asking Ellis if he'd got the name right. I thought at first it might be some sort of code.
3: But it wasn't. There really is a patient at the Melford Abbey Sanatorium called Mrs. de Rushbridger, suffering from loss of memory. That may well be significant, of course.
5: But they wouldn't let us see her. And then there's young Oliver Manders. What about him? In the letter you wrote to me in France, you suggested he might be in trouble with the police. But in fact, they didn't seem in the least concerned about him.
11: It was silly of me i thought that oliver arriving at the abbey the way he did might have been a trumped-up excuse and was it it was a bit fishy his motorbike went into a wall on a perfectly straight stretch of road and what was he doing up there anyway
5: he might have had his reasons quite natural ones
11: oh uh, oh no no not not at all
5: well if our young friend is in no danger where do i come
11: in Uh, oh no you're not going away again you're going to stay here we're going to find out the truth, you and I together,
5: and Satterthwaite.
11: Of course, and Mr. Satterthwaite. Oh, <laughs>
5: oh right. First, we need to clarify the situation. Do we believe that the same person killed Babington and Bartholomew Strange? Yes. yes. Do we believe that Tolly was murdered to prevent him revealing his suspicions about the first murder?
3: Yes. I suppose,
5: sir. Then our priority must be to investigate the first murder and not the second. Yes. And that presents us with an extraordinary difficulty. Babington was a gentle old man without, one would say, an enemy in the world. Yet he was killed. And there must be some motive for the killing. Can we think
3: of a possible motive? Gain, perhaps? Had he any money or expectation of money?
11: I should think it's most unlikely.
3: Perhaps we might approach Mrs. Babington on that point.
11: What about revenge? Did Mr. Babington do an injury to someone? Perhaps he might have married the girl somebody else was in love with.
3: The murderer certainly took his time. The Babingtons have been married over 40 years. Hmm. How about fear? Now, that seems to me a far more likely reason. Babington knew something about somebody or recognised somebody. Our only hope of getting at that will be to work backwards from the people who were there.
11: So who was at your house who was also at Sir Bartholomew's?
5: The Dakers. They were at both. Uh, and that woman who looks like a wilted
11: cabbage. <laughs> Miss Wills. <laughs> and Miss Sutcliffe.
5: Uh, you can leave Angie out of this. I've known her for years.
11: We can't leave people out just because we know them. Besides, I don't know anything about Angela Sutcliffe. She's just as likely to have done it as anyone else. More likely. All actresses have pasts.
5: In that case, we mustn't leave out Oliver Manders.
11: How could it be Oliver? He'd met Mr. Babington ever so many times before. He
5: was at both places, and his arrival at Tolly's was distinctly suspicious.
11: Very well. In that case, we'd better include Mother and myself.
5: Well, I hardly think that's a... We'll we'll do it properly
11: or not at all.
5: Satterthwaite, would you mind if I refresh my drink? No, 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 not at all. Can I get anything for either of you?
11: No, thanks.
3: Uh, thank you.
5: No.
11: Stupid of me to have lost my temper, but why should that woman be excluded? Why is he so keen she should be? Or am I just being disgustingly jealous?
3: Jealousy never pays. If you feel it, don't show it. By the way, did you really think Manders might be suspected?
11: No. I just put that in the letter because I didn't want Charles to think I was chasing after him but I don't want him to really think I have a pash for Oliver, because I haven't. Oh, why must life be so difficult?
5: Ah, here's what we'll do. Satterthwaite and I will go back to Loomath, to Crow's Nest. There haven't been any takers, so the place is still mine. Now, what about you, Egg? Hmm? Would your mother mind if you both left London a little earlier than you planned and went back home?
11: I don't think I'd have much difficulty in persuading her.
5: Excellent. So... The first thing we'll do is to go and see Mrs. Babington. Hmm?
11: She's had to move out of the rectory. She's living in a little fisherman's cottage by the harbour. She must be very lonely, poor soul.
9: It's very kind of you to come and see me, Hermione. Well, your mother, Lady Mary, was here only the other day.
5: As it happens, my old friend, Mister. Satterthwaite, has gone to visit her this afternoon.
11: I think I ought to tell you, Mrs. Babington, that this isn't just a social call... Sir Charles
9: and I have something rather serious to say. You mean you have come about the exhumation order? Oh. I had a letter from the Home Office yesterday.
5: Well, perhaps that makes what we have to say a little easier. Though I do realise it must be very distressing for you.
9: Perhaps I don't mind as much as you think. My dear husband is elsewhere and no one can trouble his rest. But the idea that Stephen may not have died a natural death... That is truly shocking. It seems impossible.
5: I have to admit the suspicion did cross my mind the night it happened.
9: You thought that someone could have killed him?
5: But I put the idea aside. And then, when I was in the south of France, I read in the paper of the death of my old friend, Sir Bartholomew Strange, in very similar circumstances.
11: I was staying at Melford Abbey at the same time, Mrs Babington. It was exactly the same. He was drinking a glass of port, and his face changed. He died within a few minutes.
9: But who could possibly want to harm either of them? My husband hadn't an enemy in the world. I suppose Mr Babington didn't leave much money? Next to nothing. He gave away so much. I used to scold him for it. (laughs) And he didn't have any expectations from anyone? Oh, no. Stephen didn't have many relations. He has a sister married to a clergyman up in Northumberland, but they're very poor...
5: Uh let us come back to the question of enemies. Could Mr. Babington have antagonized someone when he was a young man? W- when he got engaged to you, for instance, there wasn't some disappointed suitor in the office?
9: Stephen was my father's curate. He was the first young man I saw when I came home from my boarding school. I fell in love with him and he with me. Ours was a very simple love story, Sir Charles. And
11: do you know whether your husband had met any of the guests at Sir Charles's party
9: before? Well, there was you and your mother and Oliver Manders. Yes, but any of the others? we had seen Angela Sutcliffe in a play in London. We were both rather excited. We were actually going to meet her. And had you met Captain and Mrs. Dacus? Was that the rather foxy-looking man and the woman with such wonderful clothes? Yes. No, we didn't know them, nor that woman who wrote plays. She seemed rather out of it. <laughs> and Mr. Babington
11: didn't say anything to you about the people you were going to meet? Not beforehand, no. Oh.
9: And when we got there, well, there wasn't much time.
5: You must forgive us badgering you like this. But you see, we f- feel there must be something. If only we could get at it.
9: But do you really think that one of those people... Well, there can't be any other explanation.
5: I think Sir Bartholomew saw something or guessed something and he died in the same way. And five of the... Seven of the people who were there when your husband died were present at Sir Bartholomew's party. One of them must be guilty.
11: And we're not going to rest until we find out which of them it is.
10: Egg is so headstrong. She flings herself into a thing, heart and soul. You know, Mr. Satterthwaite, I don't like the way she's mixing herself up in this distressing business. I only accepted that cursed invitation to Milford Abbey because I thought she needed cheering up. She looked so down in the mouth.
4: I
3: gather that Oliver Manders made a somewhat unexpected arrival there. Tell me something about him, Lady Mary. The young fellow interests me.
10: Well, he's clever, of course. But things have been very difficult for him. In what way? Well, uh, you see, his father wasn't married to his mother. Really? Everyone knows about it down here, otherwise I wouldn't have mentioned it. His mother had an affair with a married man. His wife refused to divorce him, and the poor girl died shortly after Oliver was born. He was brought up by his uncle in London, but he always came down here in the holidays to stay with his grandmother.
3: And how did he get on with Mr. Babington?
10: Well, I'm afraid they didn't hit it off very well. The Babingtons were sorry for Oliver, and he used to go round to the vicarage to play with their boys, but he rather looked down his nose at them and boasted about how much pocket money he got.
3: And more recently?
10: As a matter of fact, he was quite rude to Mr. Babington here in this house. It was about two years ago. What happened? Oliver made a rather ill-bred attack on Christianity. Mr. Babington was very courteous and patient with him. But that only seemed to make matters worse.
12: You just look down your nose at me because I'm a bastard. Well, I'm proud of what my mother did. At least she had the courage of her convictions. I don't care what a bunch of self-righteous parsons think. I hate everything the church stands for. Smugness and hypocrisy. Its ecclesiasticism and superstition have got the world into the mess it is. I'd like to get rid of the whole canting tribe and all the churches with it.
10: And Mr Babington simply smiled and said, My dear boy, even if you swept away all the churches ever built, you would still have to reckon with God.
3: You don't like Manders, do you, Lady Mary?
10: I'm sorry for him.
3: But you wouldn't like him to marry Egg? Oh, no. Why exactly?
10: Because he isn't kind. And because there's something in him somewhere that I don't understand. Something
3: cold. What did Sir Bartholomew Strange think of him? He
10: found him rather an interesting case. Said he reminded him of someone he was treating in his sanatorium. He also said that Oliver was riding for a fall.
3: Did Sir Bartholomew ever say anything about Babington's death?
10: No, nothing.
3: Did you get the impression that something was troubling him? On
10: the contrary. He seemed in very good spirits, amused by some private joke of his. He told me at dinner that night he was going to spring a surprise on us all. But sadly... He never lived to do so.
1: The time had come for the curtain to go up on the third act of our tragedy. Time also for Hercule Poirot to return to the stage. I called on Mr. Satterthwaite in London, but was told he was away in Loomouth, and so I caught the first train and presented myself at Crow's Nest, where I found Sir Charles and Mr. Satterthwaite and Miss Litton-Gore seated together at the scene of the crime.
5: My dear fellow, what a pleasant surprise. Uh, come on through, join us by the fire.
3: You're dragging yourself all the way down here on such a stormy night.
11: But why are you here, Monsieur Poirot? I mean, have you come for any particular reason?
3: I have come to admit an error.
1: Hmm? Sir Charles? Yes. It was in this very room that you declared... You were not satisfied that Mr. Babington had died a natural death. Uh And I, I thought it was simply your instinct for drama. It seemed to me incredible that such a harmless old gentleman should have been murdered. Even now, I cannot guess at any motive. But since there has been another death under similar circumstances, which I cannot attribute to coincidence, there must be a link between the two. And so, I have come to apologize. No. I was wrong, and I request you to admit me to your counsels.
5: Oh, this is extraordinarily handsome of you, Monsieur Poirot, giving up your time like this. No, it is certainly very good of
1: you. No, 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 my friend, it is not good of me. It is curiosity, and I must admit, the hurt to my pride. But, of course, if I am not welcome, if you feel that I am intruding... No, of
5: course not, Monsieur Oh, well, indeed, Poirot. no.
1: And Mademoiselle?
11: I'm sure we'd love to have you, Monsieur Poirot.
1: Mm-hmm. Good. We are colleagues. And now, if you please, put me au courant of the situation.
3: We would be very pleased to do so, and we would welcome your expertise... But so far, we've made very little positive progress at all, except for one significant discovery. But let me take you through the course of our investigations.
1: Mais c'est magnifique. The discovery of the letters written by the butler puts an entirely new aspect on the case. I congratulate you both, gentlemen. Sir, so now you know everything we know. How does it all strike you? Can you remember, Mademoiselle, what type of port glass Sir Bartholomew had on his table?
11: No. I didn't really notice them at all.
5: I can tell you. They were, they were like these glasses of mine. Uh, these are sherry glasses, of course. His with a proper port shape. He got a set of table glasses at a sale, and as there were more than he needed, he gave some of them to me. Rather good, aren't they? Yes, they are fine
1: specimens. I rather thought something of the kind had been used. Why? The death of Sir Bartholomew Strange could be explained easily enough, but the death of the Reverend Stephen Babington is more difficult. If only it had been the other way about.
11: What on earth do you mean by that?
1: Oh, consider, mademoiselle, Sir Bartholomew is a celebrated doctor. A doctor knows secrets, important secrets a doctor may have suspicions about the sudden death of one of his patients. Oh, yes, we can find plenty of motives for the death of a doctor.
11: But why the other way about?
1: If Sir Bartholomew had died first, it is possible that Stephen Babington might have seen something, might have suspected something. Unfortunately, the deaths didn't happen in that order. Ah, alas, one must take a case as it is. Just one little idea I would like to suggest. I suppose it is not possible that Stephen Babington's death was an accident, that the poison was intended for Sir Bartholomew,
5: and the glass was picked up by the wrong man. Oh, it's an ingenious idea, Monsieur Poirot. But you see, nobody who knew Tolly would have tried poisoning him with a cocktail. Why not? Because he had a particular aversion to it. Ah, oh, it's business. It goes all wrong. It does not make sense. Besides, I, I did not see how any one glass could have been mistaken for another. Temple carried them round on a tray and everyone helped themselves to any glass they fancied. True. One cannot force a cocktail as one forces a card. It's instinctive to take the one next year.
1: Mm. Tell me, Mr. Sutterthwaite, mm-hmm. did Mr. Babington put his cocktail down or did he retain it in his hand?
3: He put it down on the table.
1: And did anyone come near the glass after he had done so?
3: No. I was nearest to him, and I assure you I didn't tamper with it in any way, even if I could have done so unobserved. No,
1: no, 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 no my friend, I am not making an accusation, but I want to be sure of my facts. According to the analysis, there was nothing out of the way in that cocktail. But Mr. Babington ate and drank nothing else you see where that leads us nowhere damn it. no no, I would not say that it suggests a very monstrous idea which I hope and trust cannot be true
11: What are you going on about?
1: No Mrs. Bamington was not at Merford Abbey therefore Mrs. Bamington it's cleared of suspicion
11: but no one has ever dreamed of suspecting her no.
1: But if the poor gentleman was not poisoned by a cocktail, then he must have been poisoned a few minutes before entering the house. Perhaps by uh, a tablet to prevent indigestion. And who then could have tampered with that?
11: But they were devoted to each other. You don't understand a bit.
1: let me tell you something, mademoiselle. In the course of my experience, I have known five cases of wives murdered by devoted husbands and 25... Of husbands murdered by devoted wives. (laughs) Les femmes, they obviously keep up appearances better.
11: I think you're perfectly horrid. The Babingtons were not like that. It's monstrous.
1: Murder is monstrous, mademoiselle. But I, who see only the facts, agree that Mrs Babington did not do this thing. The killer could only have been one of the people who were present on both occasions. One of the seven on your list. So, how do you
5: advise us to act? You have doubtless agreed on a plan? Well, the only way forward seems to be a process of elimination. My idea was to take each name on that list and consider them guilty until they're proved innocent. Mm -hmm. If we suspect there is a connection between that person and Stephen Babington, we use all our ingenuity to find out what that connection may be. If we find no connection, we move on to the next name on the list. It is good psychology, that. And what are your methods? Uh, Well, uh, we've not yet had time to discuss that, but perhaps you,
1: yourself... No, no. Do not ask me to do anything of an active nature. It is my lifelong conviction that problems are best solved by thought, by the application of the little grey cells... Let me hold what is called, I believe, a watching brief. You will perhaps from time to time wish to turn to me for counsel's opinion. Ah. Does that make sense to you, mademoiselle?
11: Excellent sense. I'm sure your experience will be very useful to us. But I must be off. Mother will have a fit.
5: Oh, you'll get soaked to the skin. Mm-hmm. I'll drive you back.
11: That would be very kind. Good night, Mrs. Satterthwaite.
3: Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night.
1: So, you see, Mr. Satterthwaite, the fish is risen. You have achieved what you wished on that morning in Monte Carlo. You knew that like the little child who was playing close by us, I was bored. I had nothing to do. And now I must admit that I find this strange mystery most intriguing. But I must take care. It is of the greatest importance that I do not play the part of what you call the spoilsport.
3: You mean that Sir Charles must have the star part? But
1: naturally, he is used to it. And moreover, it is expected of him by somebody else. Is it not? Hmm? It does not please Mademoiselle that I begin to concern myself in this matter. You are what we call quick on the uptake, Monsieur Poirot. Oh, 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 but it leaps to the eye. And speaking of Mademoiselle, tell me, if the question does not appear too frivolous, why is she, with such a
3: beautiful name as Hermione,
1: always called
3: Egg? I asked Lady Mary that. She told me when the girl was a tiny child, she was, as she put it, A regular roly-poly, always trying to stand up and always rolling over like an egg. And the nickname somehow stuck. Hmm. Well, we must work
1: together, my friend, to the greater glory of her hero, Sir Charles Cartwright. And when the case is solved... If it is solved. When? I do not permit myself to fail. You have never failed? Hmm. Since you asked... Eh bien, once, long ago, in Belgium. We will not talk about it.
3: Yeah, of course. You were saying that when this case is solved... Sir Charles will have solved it.
1: I shall merely have been a little cog in the wheel. I desire no honour, no renown. I have all the renown I need. Now tell me, who figures on this list of names Sir Charles mentioned?
3: Oh, I drew it up myself. Here.
1: Hmm. Mrs. Deckers, Captain Deckers, Miss Wills, Miss Sutcliffe, Lady Mary Littengar, Hermione Littengar, Oliver Manders. Hmm. Suggestive, is it not? Well, what is suggestive about it? The order in which the names occur. Well, I simply wrote them down as they came to me. Exactly. And the list is headed by Mrs. Deckers. I deduce from that she is considered the most likely person to have committed the crime. The least unlikely would express it better. I think perhaps she is the person you would all prefer to have committed the crime.
3: Unconsciously, that may be true. And the last
1: name on your list, Oliver Mandos. He intrigues you, does he not? You may hope that Cynthia Dacus committed the crime... But you think that Oliver Mandos did. That is why you kept him till the last. And I too am interested in that young man. I was watching him carefully on the night of Stephen Babington's death, and I saw... What did you say? I saw that there were two people at least who were playing a part. One was Sir Charles. Well, that is quite natural. A great actor does not cease to act because he is not on the stage. And the other? Manders was playing the part of a bored and blasé young man. But in reality, he was keenly alive and not a little excited. And I think that you noticed him, too. And you put him at the bottom of the list because you wanted to keep him for yourself.
3: Dear me. Am I really that sort of man? Oh, yes.
1: And when you come to talk to Mr. Manders, there is one question I would like you to ask him. What is that? Ask him why he faked that motorcycle accident outside Melfort Abbey. Tell him the police are suspicious. But they didn't seem in the least interested. That does not matter. You see, Mr. Satterthwaite, I am beginning to understand the mind of the murderer. He is cunning. He reveals to us only what he wishes us to see. If we could find out the reason for Manda's unexpected arrival at the Abbey on the night of Sir Bartholomew's death, it might help us to lift part of the curtain that is concealing what lies behind our intriguing little tragedy. <laughs> had returned to Crow's Nest, Sir Charles Cartwright's house in Devon, to pursue the investigation more closely. But I was content to remain in the background and leave it to him to play one of his favourite roles, that of the master detective.
5: Let's take another look at that list, Satterthwaite. Oh, yes. Here you are. Ah, thanks. Now, Lady Mary and Egg don't count, of course. There's no question of them being involved. So, that leaves us with Cynthia and Captain Dakers, Miss Wills, Angie Sutcliffe, and Oliver Manders. Why don't we divide them
1: up, hmm? It would certainly seem to be the most effective way to deal with the problem.
3: Let's start with Cynthia Dakers. Well, don't look at me. The world of fashion is definitely not my cup of tea. Well, it
5: seems rather keen to take her on. She has an idea that anyone so perfectly turned out won't get impartial treatment from mere males.
3: What we need to establish, of course, is whether there is any possible link between the people on this list and poor old Babington.
5: Yes. It's occurred to me that we ought to find out if any of them spent any time in Gilling. That's where the old boy was vicar before he came to
3: Well, Hardly sounds the kind of place for Captain Dacres.
5: Too far from Newmarket. Uh, I rather thought I might tackle him myself. I know some of his racing cronies, and I dare say I could pick up something that way.
1: And which of you is to talk to Miss Sutcliffe?
5: Well, Sir Charles knows her pretty well. That's precisely why I'd rather someone else took her on. For one thing, I should be accused of not putting my back into the job.
1: And because she is an old friend, you feel the natural delicacy. Yeah. Which is perfectly understandable. Why not leave her to the good Mr. Sutterthwaite?
5: Right. Now, what about Oliver Manders? I know he only turned up on the night of Tolly's death as the result of some sort of accident. But we ought to take a look at him, and he certainly knew Babington. Mr Satterthwaite will look after Mr Manders also.
1: But you have missed out her name. Huh? Miss Muriel Wills, Uh, who writes plays under the name of, um... What does she call herself?
5: Anthony Astor. Well, if Satterthwaite's going to deal with Angie Manders, I'd better take a look at her. So, if we're all agreed, I'll go and tell Egg what we've decided and then we'd better set off back to London.
1: Miss Litton-Gore, I personally found it impossible to refer to such an attractive and lively young lady as Egg, had decided that the best way to approach Mrs. Dakers would be to pretend that she had come into an unexpected inheritance.
11: You see... I've never been able to afford any really good clothes before, and I remembered how simply marvellous you looked at that dinner party at Crow's Nest, and I thought, that's the person to advise me on what to wear. My dear, how utterly charming
8: of you. I simply adore dressing a young gal. And you've got so much personality. You mustn't have anything at all ordinary. Your clothes must be simple and penetrating and just...
11: Faintly visible, if you understand me. Do you want several things? I thought about four evening frocks and a couple of day things and a sport suit or two. Let's start with the evening gowns. Marcel, could we have Amour on Rose? I suppose you haven't been to Crow's Nest since then? Oh, my dear, I simply couldn't. It was
8: so upsetting And anyway, I always think Cornwall too terribly arty. I simply cannot abide artists. Their bodies are always
11: such an odd shape. It was rather a shattering business, wasn't it? And poor Mr Babington was such a pet. Quite a period piece in his way. You'd met him somewhere before, hadn't you? That dear old dugout. Oh, I thought I remembered him saying so. At a place called Gilling? Marcel... Could we have petite Scandale now?
8: And after that, uh, the Blue Patu. Wasn't it extraordinary, Sir Bartholomew, keeling over like that? My dear, it was too penetrating for words. It's done me a world of good. All sorts of dreadful women come and order frocks from me. On the off chance, I might have murdered him. i rather played up to that. Now... Just take a look at this positively provocative thrill. Doesn't it make the whole thing quite adorable?
1: Fortunately, at that moment, a wealthy and quite monumental American lady arrived and Mrs. Dakers rushed off to welcome her. Miss Litonga made an unobtrusive exit and paced quietly about Bruton Street, waiting until one o'clock when she put the second part of her plan into operation.
11: Excuse me, but may I speak to you a minute? Yes, madam, of course. You're one of the mannequins at Ambrosines, aren't you? (laughs) I noticed you this morning. I hope you won't be frightfully offended, but I'm writing an article about working in the fashion business, and I wonder whether you'd like to have lunch with me at the Barclay or somewhere and tell me all about it. Oh, yes, of course, madam. Oh, but I mustn't be too
6: long. We're only allowed an hour for lunch.
11: Well, I think that just about covers everything I wanted to ask you. You really have been very helpful. I must admit, I'm rather new to this kind of work. I'm frightfully badly off at the moment, and I'm counting on these journalism jobs to keep the wolf from the door. From the way you were behaving in the showroom, I thought you were... Oh, okay. no, that was just play-acting. I haven't got a bean. I expect Mrs. Dakers would be simply furious if she knew. Oh, I should say she would. I got the impression she could be a bit of a tartar.
6: Well, none of us like her in that effect. She's clever, but she's hard as nails.
11: I suppose she makes lots of money.
6: Well, it's not for me to tell tales. of oh, course not. But if you ask me, the firm's not far off Queer Street. It's my belief that Mrs. Dakers has been borrowing Everleigh just to keep going in the hopes that the business will brighten up and that she's got in really deep. Honestly, she looks terrible sometimes, though she's still got an eye for the young men. Really? There's been a lot of talk amongst the girls of a fella, very rich, but a bit soft, if you know what I mean. Apparently, Madam has been running him for all he was worth. He might have been able to put things right, but his specialist, or whatever he was, ordered him on a sea voyage. Said he couldn't answer for the consequences if he didn't. They said the specialist was that same chap that got murdered in Yorkshire. Madam was there when it happened. And the girls were having such a laugh saying she'd done him in because he sent her young man away.
11: (laughs) Uh, Of course, it was just fun. Oh, naturally, I quite understand. But Mrs. Dacres really is my idea of a murderess. So hard and remorseless. Oh, and she's got such a wicked temper. When she lets go, there's
6: not one of us dares go near her. And they say her husband's scared stiff of her, no wonder.
11: Tell me, have you ever heard her speak of anyone called Babington? Or a place in Kent, Gilling? No, I don't remember anything like that.
6: <gasps> but just look at the time I must be off. Oh, yeah, thanks for the lunch. Oh, and I shall look out for your article. <laughs>
1: Although it had been agreed that Sir Charles should talk to Mrs. Dacre's husband, Miss Littengore's curiosity was by now thoroughly aroused, and she went off to the Dacre's flat in St. John's Wood, where she had the good fortune to encounter the gannet captain getting out of a
7: taxi. Oh, Miss Gore! What an unexpected pleasure. Oh. <laughs> I just got back from Newbury. Cynthia won't be home for ages. Why don't we go round to the seventy-two Club and have a life now? How easy
1: the investigation is when one is young and pretty. One does not even have to give an explanation of why one is there. Something
7: rather amusing about a doctor being poisoned, isn't there? <laughs> Wrong way about. A doctor is a chap who poisons other people. <laughs> <laughs>
11: it's odd, isn't it, that, that whenever we meet, it's at a death. Uh,
7: it's damn disturbing. Makes you feel a bit grooey. Fellas popping off all over the place. Makes you wonder if it mightn't be your turn next.
11: But you knew Mr. Babington before, didn't you? At Gilling.
7: Never heard of the place. Never clapped eyes on the Padre before. funny thing, him popping off just the same way that Strange did.
11: Perhaps he was murdered, too. No,
7: no. Nobody murders Parsons. Doctors are different.
11: Yes, I suppose they are. Yes,
7: interfering devils. Get a fellow shut up, put him in hell, shut him up and keep the, the stuff from him.
11: You mean that Sir Bartholomew's strange... Oh, Sir
7: Bartholomew, humbug. I'd like to know what goes on in that sanatorium of his. They put you in there. You, you can't get out. And they, and they say you've gone in there of your own free will just because they've grabbed you when you when you you've got the horror of that. Uh, I, I'm all to pieces, all to pieces. Uh, Jules? Yes, Colonel. Uh, will you have another one, my dear? Not for me. Uh, well, yeah, another pink, gin there, uh, Jules. You better make it a double. Yes, Colonel. Yeah. Uh, 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 lost my nerve for a moment there. Eh? Just as well, Cynthia, wasn't (laughs) here. I don't want to give the impression I was the one bumped Strange off, but someone must have done it, though. And it must have been one of us at that party. Which of us? That's the question.
11: Perhaps you know which. (laughs) Why should I know?
7: Ah, I'll tell you one thing. I wasn't going to take that damned cure of his, no matter how Cynthia went on at me. Yeah, they were both up to something. But they couldn't
11: fool me. Tell me, do you know anything about a Mrs. de Rushbridger, who was a patient at the sanatorium?
7: Rushbridger? Rushbridger. Yeah. Well, I have an idea that Strange said something about her, but. Uh, what was it? Uh, trouble is the old memory. It's, it's beginning to go. I, I can't get a grip on things. Uh, yeah, I've, I've got enemies. I've got enemies, you know. All over the place.
11: Enemies. you
7: oh, spying on me. All the time. There's probably someone in here now. And, and, and what was that woman? What was that woman doing in my room at Strangest Place? What woman? Oh, that that, that, that rabbit faced woman who writes plays.
11: Muriel Wills. Yeah. You are like
7: Oh, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Uh. Oh. That's uh. better. Yeah. Yes, it was the morning after Strange died. I'd I just come up from breakfast. I I saw her come out of my room and go through the bay's door at the end of the landing. Uh, why did she want to go messing about in my room? Or do you think it's true what Cynthia says? What did she say? Well, she said that I was seeing things. Mind you, I, I won't deny that I, 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 do, I do see things now and again when I get the, uh, the old... Uh, you know. But I be mean, seeing a woman is different. And I did see her. Ah, it's nasty. Sort of eyes she's got. Go through you.
11: I must be going. Huh. Thank you so much for the drink, Captain Dacre. No, oh, no, thank
7: me, my dear. I'm delighted. Absolutely delighted.
1: <laughs> and while Miss Litton Gore was stealing out through the smoke laden 72 Club, the good Mr. Satterthwaite was taking tea with Angela Satcliff.
15: Tell me, Mr. Satterthwaite, am I to regard you as a friend or as a sleuth? Have you come here for the sake of my beautiful eyes, as the French say so charmingly? Or are you here just to pump me about the murder?
3: <clears throat> can you doubt that the first alternative is the right one?
15: I can and do. The only thing I can't make up my mind about is whether it is an insult or a compliment to be considered a potential murderess. On the whole, I think it's a compliment. (laughs) Tell me one thing. Is there anything in what that girl said?
3: What girl? And what did she say?
15: Oh, don't be so tiresome. The Lytton-Gore girl, the one who's so infatuated with Charles. She thinks that nice old clergyman was murdered, too.
3: What do you think?
15: Well, it certainly happened in just the same way. And she's an intelligent girl. Is Charles serious?
3: I expect your views on that subject are likely to be more valuable than mine.
15: How appallingly discreet you are. I know Charles pretty well. He seems to me to display all the signs of wanting to settle down. How
3: dull men are when they start to do that. I've often wondered why Sir Charles has never married.
15: My dear, he never showed any signs of wanting to. He and I were... Well, it was very pleasant while it lasted, and we're still the best of friends. I suppose that's why the Lytton Gore child gives me such ferocious looks. I'm not at all sure I'm not just a little jealous of her. Why didn't Charles come and catechise me himself? Too much nice feeling, I suppose. Does he think me guilty? Do you think I'm a murderess, Mr. Satterthwaite?
3: Uh, There would seem to me to be a certain lack of motive.
15: I also happen to like Bartholomew Strange. And because we were friends, I'd rather like to help track down who killed him.
3: I suppose you didn't see or hear anything that might have a bearing on the case?
15: Nothing. I haven't already told the police. And that didn't amount
3: to much. What about the butler? I hardly noticed him. Any peculiar behaviour on the part of any of the guests?
15: No. Apart from that boy, what was his name?
3: Oliver Manders.
15: He turned up very unexpectedly and seemed terribly nervous.
3: Did Sir Bartholomew seem surprised?
15: He said he thought it was a very odd business. A new method of gate crashing, he called it. Only he said,
8: it's my wall he has crashed, not my gate.
3: (laughs) I I gather he told you something about a secret passage. Yes, yes. He promised to
15: show it to me. But he never had the chance.
3: <clears throat> he, he didn't happen to mention a patient of his, a, a Mrs. De Rushbridger.
15: No, never heard of her.
3: Do you know a place called Gilling in Kent?
15: I don't think so. Why?
3: I understood you knew Mr. Babington when he was there. Who was he? The old clergyman who died at Crow's Nest.
15: Oh, that was his name. Who told you I knew him?
3: Someone who ought to know.
15: Did they think I had an affair with him or something? Clergymen do get up to some very naughty things, like that man in the barrel, but there's nothing doing with your Mr. Babington. I'd never seen him before in my life.
1: Sir Charles had taken it upon himself to interview Muriel Wills, or Anthony Astor, as the admirers of her uh, moderately entertaining place called her. She lived, somewhat incongruously, with her budgerigars, in Tooting, in a house cluttered with porcelain dogs, occasional tables, and Chinese brasses, from Birmingham.
9: Fancy you tracking me down here, Sir Charles. <laughs> My mother will be so excited. She just adores the theatre. Especially anything romantic. She loved that play where you were a prince at a university. Ah. <laughs> she goes to matinees, you know, and eats chocolates.
5: Well, I'm very flattered. It is so encouraging to be remembered.
9: Miss Sutcliffe was here only the other day, and Mother's talked of nothing else since.
5: Angela was here?
9: Yes, she's putting on a play of mine. A little Dog Laughed. Oh, of
5: course. I was reading about it in the stage. <laughs> Rather
9: an intriguing title. I'm so glad you think so. It's a lot of froth and nonsense. It all revolves round Miss Sutcliffe, of course. Everyone dances to her fiddling. That's the idea.
5: Fascinating. I wonder if you can guess what has brought me here. Oh, well,
9: I don't suppose it was just to see little me.
5: It was really Satterthwaite who put the idea into my head. He fancies himself as being a good judge of character.
9: He's very clever about people. Mm. Seems to be rather his hobby.
5: And he's strongly of the opinion that if there were anything worth noticing on the night of Sir Bartholomew's death, you would have noticed it.
9: Is that what he said? Yes. I was very interested, I must admit. You see, I've never seen a murder at close hand before, so I tried to notice everything I could.
5: And what exactly did you notice?
9: Oh, nothing that you'd call interesting, Sir Charles, just little odds and ends. Uh, Though There was one thing, something I ought to have told the police about, but I forgot. What was that? The butler. He had a kind of strawberry mark on his left wrist. I noticed it when he was handing me vegetables.
5: Where exactly was the mark? What size was it?
9: If you just stretch out your own wrist... Uh, Thank you. It was just here, about the size of a sixpence, and rather the shape of Australia. A very
5: precise observation.
9: You think I ought to write to the police and tell them?
5: Uh, Certainly. It might be of the greatest value in tracing the man. Positive marks of identification are not always that easy to come by, and some people are so indeterminate that there's nothing about them to take hold of. (laughs) Old Babington, for instance. He had a Curiously undefined personality.
9: His hands were very characteristic. Huh? What I would call scholar's hands. A little crippled with arthritis, but very refined fingers and beautiful nails.
5: What an observer you are. <laughs> but of course you knew him before.
9: No, not me. That was the first time I met him.
5: But I'm sure he said he'd known you at Chilling.
9: No. You must have been mixing me up with somebody else. Or he was. Ah.
5: Did it ever occur to you he might have been murdered too?
9: I know that you and Miss Lytton-Gore think so.
5: And what do you think?
9: It doesn't seem likely.
5: So, there's nothing else you can tell me about any of the guests? Uh, no. Nothing about Mrs. Dakers or Captain Dacres or Oliver Mander's. Nothing. Oh, well, poor Satterthwaite will be most disappointed.
9: I am so sorry.
5: Well, don't forget to tell the police about that thing, me, Bob. Uh,
9: the mark on the butler's right wrist. Yeah. No, I won't forget.
5: Well, uh, goodbye, then.
9: Uh, goodbye. Oh,
5: just a minute. Did you say right wrist? Uh, you said left just now.
9: Uh, did I? Hmm. Oh, silly of me. Uh, would you mind handing me that brass plate as though it was a vegetable dish? Left side. Oh.
5: Cabbage, madame?
9: Thank you, Sir Charles, I'm <laughs> quite sure now. It was the left wrist, as I said the first time. Stupid of me.
5: Well, left and right can be terribly puzzling sometimes.
9: Yes. Memory works in a curious way. Sometimes you see things you never saw in the first place.
1: The following day, Mr Satterthwaite took a taxi into the city and made his way to the offices of Spear and Ross, where he found
3: Oliver Manders, who seemed curiously ill at ease. Did you see the news in the papers this morning? What news? Of a post-mortem on
12: Babington. I heard they were digging the old boy up. What was the verdict? Poisoned by nicotine. Well, at least Egg will be satisfied. She always insisted it was murder. You don't seem surprised. Well, frankly, I'm not that much interested. A very dreary business, Murder. You may not be interested, my boy, but I understand the police
3: are beginning to take quite an interest in you. What exactly do you mean by that? That rather inartistic accident you contrived outside Melford Abbey. They don't think much of it. Don't they? But perhaps you have a perfectly satisfactory
12: explanation. I've got an explanation. How satisfactory it is, I don't know. Will you let me be the judge of that? The whole thing was Sir Bartholomew's idea. What? I got a letter from him suggesting that I should fake an accident outside the house and claim his hospitality. How perfectly extraordinary. He said he couldn't put his reasons in writing, but he would explain them at the first opportunity. And did he? No, he didn't. I got there shortly before dinner. I didn't have the chance to see him alone, and by the end of dinner, he was dead. You have his letter? It seems to have disappeared. I can't find it anywhere. Hardly very helpful. Did you say anything to the police? No. It all seemed too fantastical. And yet you obeyed Sir Bartholomew's summons. Yes, I was curious. It all seemed refreshingly out of the way. Is there anything else? What do you mean, anything else? I mean, is there anything that might tell against you? I suppose you'll hear about it sooner or later... That damned woman isn't likely to hold her tongue. What damned woman? That playwright woman. It was the morning after the murder. She asked for my card, and as I took one out of my pocketbook, something fell to the floor. She picked it up and handed it to me. What was it? A cutting from a medical journal about nicotine poisoning. I'd never seen it before in my life. How very awkward. I suppose she told the police. Not as far as I know.
3: I fancy she's a woman who likes to keep things to herself. Quite a dangerous woman in her way. She knows something. I'll swear she knows
5: something.
11: What do you think of Oliver's story, Monsieur Poirot?
5: It strikes me as most
1: peculiar and highly uncharacteristic of the late Sir Bartholomew.
11: You mean he's lying? Mm,
5: There are so many kinds of lies. But it does chime in with what Lady Mary said about Tolly cooking up some kind of surprise.
11: Oh, I think he was probably pulling Mummy's leg. Still, we're not getting anywhere. Failure all along the line. What do we do now, Monsieur Poirot?
1: We think.
11: What's the good of that?
1: With the exercise of the little grey cells... Oh, I'm
11: sick of hearing you going on about your little grey cells. Can't you do anything?
1: Very well, mademoiselle. It shall be as you wish. I will give a party. The sherry party. That is fashionable, is it not?
11: A sherry party?
1: And to it I will ask Mrs. Cynthia Dacres and Captain Dacres, Miss Sutcliffe, Miss Wills, Mr. Manders, and your charming mother, mademoiselle. And to do it in style, I will reserve an apartment at the Ritz.
11: Wonderful. And something will happen at the party, won't it? Just like in detective stories. All the people will be there, and you will announce who did it.
6: Well, I don't know if
7: Quite the
15: spider's parlor, Monsieur Poirot. And all your... Poor little flies have walked in.
7: (laughs) All gathered together again, eh? Third time lucky, perhaps.
1: Oh, no, 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 Captain. This is a friendly little party. Do not let us talk of murder. These things, they spoil the palate. Let us eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die.
8: Not as soon as all that, I hope.
1: Oh, my lord, I have mentioned death. Forgive me, Mrs. Dakers. And allow me to congratulate you on a very charming gown. <laughs> Your health, madame.
3: Your health, Lady Mary.
5: Here's to you, egg.
1: Cheerio.
3: Cheers. Ah,
1: it is an excellent drink, the sherry. I prefer it to the cocktail and a thousand times to the whisky. By drinking the whiskey, you ruin the palate. To appreciate the delicate wines of France. <laughs>
9: <is a woman. laughs> Charles, the <does> <laughs> Oh, God, uh, not another one. Uh, Has uh, Sir Charles been poisoned too? It's quite unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> the poor devil's dead. My
1: friends, do not... You
9: fool!
11: <laughs> pretending to be God and know all about everything and you let this happen. Another murder, Monsieur Poirot, and under your very nose. If you'd let the whole thing alone, this would never have happened. It's you murdered, Charles. <laughs> you, you. A murder and under your very nose monsieur Poirot if you'd let the whole thing alone this wouldn't have happened it's you who murdered Charles
1: it is true mademoiselle I confess I murdered Sir Charles but I am a very special kind of murderer I can kill and I can restore the dead to life <laughs> a magnificent performance Sir Charles perhaps you would now like to take your curtain call <laughs>
7: <laughs> 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 <You>. <laughs> <Yes>.
1: <laughs> Mesdames, <laughs> Messieurs, I demand pardon of you all. This little farce was necessary to prove to you all and incidentally to prove to myself a fact which my reason already told me was true. Uh, what?
7: Absolutely
1: In one of the glasses on this tray, yeah. I placed a teaspoonful of water. That water represented pure nicotine. These glasses are of the same kind as those used by Sir Bartholomew Strange. Owing to the heavily cut glass, a small quantity of colourless liquid is quite undetectable. Imagine then the pot glass of Sir Bartholomew. After it was put out on the dining table, somebody introduced into it a sufficient quantity of pure nicotine... That could have been done by anyone, the butler, the parlourmaid, or one of the guests who might have slipped into the dining room on their way downstairs. Dessert arrives, and the port glass is filled. Sir Bartholomew drinks and dies. So simple when you come to think of it. Now, suppose that tonight was not a farce, but a tragedy. Sir Charles is dead. What will be the first step taken by the police?
15: Why, to find the glass, of course. It's here, where Charles let it fall.
1: And you are of the opinion that if the glass had contained nicotine, traces of it would be found by the police? Yes, I
15: suppose so. You would
1: have supposed wrong. No nicotine would have been found. For that is not the glass from which Sir Charles drank. The real glass I have been hiding behind the tail of my coat. Voila. It is like the conjuring trick. The attention cannot be in two places at once. The conjurer waits for the psychological woman.
15: When Charles did his spectacular collapse...
1: Everyone crowds round the body, and no one, no one at all, looks at Hercule Poirot. And it is then
3: that I make the exchange of the glasses. And that's what happened at Crow's Nest and at Melford Abbey. And why nobody found any trace of nicotine in the cocktail glass or the port glass.
1: So who changed them? That still has to be revealed. You don't know? Perhaps. Perhaps not.
15: Well, I think that's quite enough excitement for one evening, Monsieur Poirot. It's time I was off.
1: Yes, Yes, I I agree. agree. Uh, One (laughs) little moment, I beg you. Tonight we have played the comedy, but that comedy may so easily have become a tragedy. Under certain conditions, the murderer may strike a third time. Now, if any one of you knows anything that may bear in any way on these crimes, I implore that person to speak out now. To keep any knowledge to oneself may be dangerous. No one? Be it so, then. I have given you warning. I can do no
5: more. That was a damn clever bit of work, Poirot.
11: But was that the only reason why you planned it? To see if you could switch the glasses. No,
1: mademoiselle, I had one other aim. What was that? I wanted to watch the expression on one person's face when Sir Charles fell dead.
9: Which person?
1: huh. That is my secret.
11: Well, won't you tell us what you saw?
1: No, this is not the time, mademoiselle.
11: Does that mean you know who the murderer is? Mm,
1: you may put it that way if you wish.
3: A telegram for Monsieur Poirot.
1: Oh, thank you.
3: Thank
11: you, sir. What does it say?
1: See for yourselves.
11: Please come and see me at once. Can give you valuable information about Sir Bartholomew Strange's death. Margaret de Rashbridger.
5: Sir, so, we were right after all. She has got something to do with the case.
11: What do you think the mystery
5: is? I can't imagine. But it's bound to throw some light on the Babington affair. If Tolly got those people together at Milford Abbey then the surprise he was going to spring on them had something to do with Mrs. de Rushbridger. I think we can assume that, don't you, Monsieur Poirot? This
1: telegram certainly complicates the affair, but we must act quickly, very quickly.
3: Well, we could, I suppose, take the first train up tomorrow morning, but is it really necessary for all of us to go?
11: Sir Charles and I had arranged to drive down to Gilling to talk to Mrs. Milray.
3: Uh, she's the mother of my secretary
5: and was living there when Babington was vicar, mm-hmm. but we can always postpone that.
11: But I don't think we ought to postpone anything. Surely Monsieur Poirot and Mr. Satterthwaite could go to Yorkshire. An excellent
1: arrangement. Sir Charles is obviously the right person to talk to Mrs. Milroy, and who knows, you may learn from her far more important facts than we shall discover at Melfort Abbey.
16: I simply cannot understand how you could have possibly had a telegram from Mrs. de Rushbridger. There must be some madman about. Been such confusion everywhere, what with the police and everything.
3: The
1: police?
16: Perhaps it
3: would be best, matron, if we were to see Mrs. de Rushbridge straight away.
16: Then you don't know?
3: Know what?
1: Mrs. de Rushbridge is dead. Dead? Mm. Oh, mon dieu, I should have seen. How did she die? Mm, It
16: was all very strange. A box of chocolates came for her, liqueur chocolates, by post. She ate one. It must have tasted horrible. But she was taken by surprise, I suppose, and she swallowed it. One doesn't like spitting a thing out.
1: No, I understand. And if a liquid runs suddenly down your throat, it is difficult.
16: So she swallowed it and called out and the nurse came running, but we couldn't do anything. She died in about two minutes. Then the doctor sent for the police. And they came and examined the chocolates. All the top layer had been tampered with.
1: And the poison involved?
16: They think it was nicotine.
1: Of course. Oh, what an audacious stroke. If it is possible, madame... I would like to see the dead woman's body.
16: Of course. If you could just wait here a moment.
1: Her death was not peaceful. The
16: agony
3: of it still shows on her face. Poor soul. Someone knew she was going to speak and killed her. Yes, that is so. She was murdered to prevent her telling us what she knew. Or
1: what she did not know. But let us return to London... There have been too many deaths. The murder is much more dangerous than I had thought.
3: So who sent that telegram? Did you find out? According to the police, it was handed in at Melfort Post Office by a small boy. He said it had been given to him that morning by a man dressed in shabby clothes who said a strange lady at the house in the park had thrown it down to him from her window, wrapped round two half-crowns. How excessively melodramatic! What do you make of
1: it, Poirot? It proves what I have always said. There is nothing to be gained by rushing up and down England. What did you find out from your visit to Gilling? Um, Nothing at all, I'm afraid. Precisely. The truth can only be seen from within. What do you want to do, then? I want to think. I only ask of you 24 hours in which to think.
5: Will thinking tell you what it was that poor woman could have said if she had lived? I believe so. It hardly seems possible. But if you can see through the mystery, it's more than I can. I'm beaten, and I confess it. I've decided to give up playing the great detective. Oh, uh, there's just one thing. I'm rather worried about Miss Wills. What about her? She's gone. Gone where? Well, nobody knows. After I got your telegram about Mrs. de Rushbridger, I started to think things over. I felt convinced that Miss Wills was hiding something, and I thought I'd have a shot at getting it out of her. I drove out to Tooting, but she wasn't there. Her people had received a telegram from her saying she'd gone away for a day or two, and not to worry. And were they worried? Yes, they were. You see, she hadn't taken any luggage with her.
1: I warned her. I warned everyone. Do you remember I said to them, speak now. Do you think that she, too? I have my own ideas. For the moment, I prefer not to discuss them. Then we'll leave you to it. Ah, for 24 hours. I must have the absolute concentration.
11: What on earth are you doing? Building card
1: houses. (laughs) It is not that I have become childish in my dotage. It is an old habit of mine and more stimulating to the mind. This morning, first thing, I go out and buy a pack of cards. Unfortunately, I make an error. They are not real cards.
11: Oh, they've sold you happy families.
1: Hmm? What is that, the happy family?
11: It's a game. Children play it in the nursery.
1: Ah, Hmm. they serve just as well.
11: Uh, Master Bun the baker's son. I always loved him. And here's Mrs. Mug, the milkman's wife. I suppose that's me.
1: Oh, why is that funny card you, mademoiselle?
11: Because of the name. Charles and I are going to be married. And his name's not really Cartwright at all. It's Mug. So I'm going to be Lady Mug.
1: And is that why he no longer wants to play the great detective?
11: Perhaps it is. But aren't you going to wish me happiness? Oh,
1: I do wish you happiness, mademoiselle. The happiness that endures. The happiness that is built on a rock.
11: I'll tell Charles you called him a rock. But what do you hope to find from your happy family house?
1: Ah, it is the question I ask myself without ceasing. Why was Mr. Babington killed? When I can answer that, the case will be solved.
11: Well, I'll leave you to it. Mm. I'm sorry to have disturbed you. Charles and I are going to the dress rehearsal of Little Dog Laughed. It's the first night tomorrow. Oh,
1: mon Dieu. What
11: what is it? Has something happened?
1: Yes, indeed, something has happened. Uh, But do not be alarmed. You go off to your dress rehearsal, but tomorrow evening, before the first night, I would like you and Sir Charles and Mr. Satterthwaite to come here. By then, perhaps my little idea will have worked itself out. (laughs) I hope you enjoy the play.
11: Goodbye then, Monsieur Poirot. I wish I knew what you were up to.
1: But yes. Everything explains itself. A motive such as I have never come across. The happy families. I need them no longer.
11: So, Monsieur Poirot, did your card <laughs> trick come off?
5: Have you found our murderer? Well, come on, man. Don't keep us on tenterhooks. I
1: ah, know, Sir Charles. The tenterhooks are part of my method. Uh You must allow me to reconstruct the crime in my own way. As you please, Monsieur Poirot. I will begin with the murder of Stephen Babington last August. On that evening, Sir Charles advanced the theory that the unfortunate clergyman had been murdered. I did not
5: agree.
3: Because you could not believe that anyone would want to kill a man like Babington. Or that it
5: was possible to kill one particular person... By putting poison in one glass on a tray of cocktails. But
1: I must admit that Sir Charles was right and I was wrong. I was wrong because I was looking at the crime from an entirely false angle. It was only 24 hours ago that I perceived the proper angle of vision.
11: When you were building your house of cards?
1: One should always start an investigation with the simplest and most obvious questions. Granted that Stephen Babington had died as a result of drinking a cocktail... Who had the best opportunity of poisoning his glass?
5: Um, well, I did, I suppose. And the parlourmaid, of course.
1: But neither Sir Charles nor the parlourmaid could have directed that particular glass to Babington's hand. It looked as if chance, and chance alone, had led him to pick it up.
11: And what about the glass that poisons Sir Bartholomew?
3: Well, I think we can safely say that we have eliminated the main suspect, the butler,
1: Ellis But there is also the possibility that any one of the guests could have slipped into the dining room and put nicotine into the glass.
11: That's why we drew up the list of the people who'd been at Crow's Nest and at Melford Abbey.
1: And the first four names on your list, Captain and Mrs. Dakers, Miss Sutcliffe and the observant Miss Wills, I discarded immediately. Why? It was impossible that any one of them could have known that they were going to meet Stephen Babington at dinner. The use of nicotine as a poison indicated a carefully thought-out plan, not one that could be put into action on the spur of the moment. But what about
3: young Manders? He would have known that Babington would be at Crow's Nest, and he was at Melford Abbey as well.
1: Yes, Oliver Manders was by far the most likely suspect. And since that is still the case, I asked him to join us here. He has been patiently awaiting his cue. Will you come in, Mr. Manders?
12: Good evening. I rather gather congratulations are in order, Sir Charles. They are indeed. Thank you, Manders.
11: Thank you, Oliver.
1: As I was saying, Mr. Manders drew attention to himself that evening at Crows Nest. He was tense and on edge, and he had actually quarrelled with or had displayed marked animosity towards
12: Mr. Babington. Yes, I felt sorry about that after the old boy died. But I've got rather a short fuse where clergymen are concerned. And then there were the
1: curious circumstances of his arrival at Melfort Abbey on the night Sir Bartholomew was murdered.
12: But I explained all that to Mr. Satterthwaite. It was the old boy himself who suggested I fake the accident. But you no longer have his letter? No. I must have lost it somewhere.
11: Hmm.
1: None of this is very convincing, Mr. Manders. Convincing or not is the truth. Yes, Mr. Manders, I believe it is. You were the most obvious suspect, but then I began to realize that that was what I was supposed to think. I had been led to believe that the murderer would be someone who had been present both at Crow's Nest and at Melfort Abbey and everything pointed to you but a really clever criminal would have realised that anyone who had been at both places would be bound to be under suspicion and therefore would have arranged not to be
3: apparently there. You mean that there was someone present at Melford Abbey who had been at Crow's Nest but was not recognised? That could hardly apply to Miss Milray or to Mrs Babington, and Sir Charles and I were in the south of France, and even if we had somehow sneaked back into the country... The company at Milford Abbey would have known us instantly. You, perhaps, Mr. Satterthwaite,
1: but Sir Charles is a different matter. He is an actor, accustomed to playing many parts, which led me to reconsider that very mysterious person, Ellis the Butler. A man who appears from nowhere a fortnight before the crime and vanishes afterwards with complete success. Why was Ellis so successful? Hmm? Because Ellis did not really exist.
11: But you're not seriously suggesting that Ellis was Charles? That's ridiculous. The servants would have recognized him. And uh, what about Tolly?
5: <laughs> I don't mind you indulging your little fancies, Poirot, but you can't tell me I could have fooled my oldest friend. Oh,
1: no. He knew perfectly well who you were. It had been arranged between you. Sir Bartholomew gave it away when he said... You're a first-class butler, aren't you, Ellis?
3: I must admit, it did seem to be an extraordinary thing to say.
1: But perfectly understandable if Sir Bartholomew was in on the joke, a joke that was intended to deceive the whole house party. Hence Sir Bartholomew's cheerful humour and his remark to Miss Sutcliffe about a surprise he was going to spring on everyone. And after the murder had been accomplished, Ellis, left by the secret passage, resumed his own identity and two days later was strolling through the gardens at Monte Carlo, ready to be shocked and surprised by the news of his old friend's death.
3: I really cannot believe a word of this. What about the blackmailing letters we discovered in Alice's room?
1: They were written by Sir Charles, who then contrived to have you discover them. And just consider the opportunities available to a butler. In valeting the gentlemen, he could fold and press their clothes, and in the process remove certain letters.
12: You mean he took the letter that Sir Bartholomew had written to me?
1: And planted the press-cutting which fell so conveniently at Miss Wills's feet.
12: I was beginning to wonder whether she might have planted it herself.
1: Let us now turn to the part played by Miss Wills. She is a curious personality... Apparently completely nondescript, but of extraordinary intelligence and perception. She was the only person who occasioned Sir Charles any uneasiness. That is why he was so concerned to tackle her himself. He was fairly reassured by the interview, and distinctly gratified that she had noticed the birthmark he had gone to such pains over. But then came the catastrophe. I do not think that until then it had occurred to her that Ellis was Sir Charles, but she had noticed the hands that held the dishes at dinner, and it did suddenly occur to her that Sir Charles was Ellis. And so she asked him to pretend to hand her a dish of vegetables, but it was not whether the birthmark was on the left or the right wrist that interested her. She wanted a pretext to study his hands.
12: You're
11: making this up? How can you possibly know what happened?
1: Because I've been talking with her, mademoiselle. That is why I advised her to leave her home immediately, so as not to share the same fate as Mrs. de Rushbridger. But how does she fit into all this? I don't understand. Sir Charles was worried. He did not like the expression of satisfied malice he had seen on Miss Wills' face. Attention must be focused elsewhere. On the day of my sherry party... Sir Charles rose very early, went to Yorkshire, and disguised in shabby clothes, gave a telegram to a boy to send off, and he did one thing more: he dispatched a box of poisoned chocolates to a woman he had never seen and of whom he knew nothing. It was a splendid coup de theatre. Mrs. de Rushbridge had something of importance to tell us. Mrs. de Rashbridge was killed before she could speak, but I, Hercule Poirot, was not deceived.
3: So that was what you meant when you said she had been killed before she could tell us what she did not know? Mm -hmm. She had nothing to do with the case at all. She was simply a red herring. Precisely, mon
1: ami. But in his seeming triumph, Sir Charles made a stupid childish error. The telegram was addressed to me, Hercule Poirot, at the Ritz Hotel, but Mrs. de Rushbreacher knew nothing at all of my connection with the crime.
3: Childish, as you say.
1: So, I had reached the stage where I knew the identity of the murderer and I saw, for the first time, that the death of Sir Bartholomew Strange was his overall objective. But what reason could Sir Charles have to kill off his old friend? Could I work out a motive?
5: Monsieur Poirot, don't you think this has gone on long enough? I know that it is part of your performance to focus everyone's attention on the wrong man so that they will be all the more astounded when the real criminal is revealed. (laughs) You have had your fun. You have spun out this absurd story. Now... Don't you think it's time you told us who the real
1: murderer is? Unless I cannot oblige you, Sir Charles. The real murderer has already been revealed.
5: <laughs> well, so, so what was my motive for taking the life of a man I had known ever since my school days?
1: Your motive is sitting there, Sir Charles. Uh, Miss Hermione Little girl.
11: What do you mean
1: by that? It was clear from the first time I saw you together that Sir Charles loved you. Loved you with that terrible, absorbing passion that comes to a man in middle age and which is usually inspired by an innocent young girl. You loved her, Sir Charles. She, it was evident, had the hero worship for you. You had only to speak for her to fall into your arms, but you did
5: not speak. Why? You know damned well why. I thought she was in love with Mandish. You did not believe that for a second.
1: You are a man of the world. You knew perfectly well Miss Litton feelings for you. Why then did you not marry her? It could only have been because there was some obstacle. And the obstacle was the fact that you already had a wife. What? <laughs> That's absurd. (laughs) You married when you were very young, before you became known as an actor.
3: But if that's the case, what happened to her? Where is she now?
1: There are two tragedies for which the law gives no relief. The woman you married might be serving a life sentence in some prison, or she might be confined to a lunatic asylum. In neither case could you obtain a divorce.
11: I don't believe any of this.
1: If nobody knew, you might marry Miss Little without telling her the truth. But... Supposing one person was aware of it. A man you had known since boyhood. Sir Bartholomew Strange. An honourable, upright physician. Or oh, he might pity you deeply. He might sympathise with a liaison with an irregular life. But he would not stand by silent and see you enter into a bigamous marriage with an unsuspecting young girl. <laughs> um, what about Babington? Did he know about it too? I thought so at first. "'but I found nothing to support my theory. "'Then a chance remark from Miss Gore "'about going to a dress rehearsal opened my eyes. "'The poison in the glass picked up by Mr. Babington "'was intended for any of those present in the room, "'with three exceptions. "'Yourself, Miss Gore, "'to whom you were careful to hand an innocent glass, "'and Sir Bartholomew, who did not drink cocktails. that's nonsense. What's the point of it? A very singular point. The murder of Stephen Babington was nothing more nor less than a dress rehearsal.
5: (laughs) You really have the most extraordinary imagination, Mr Poirot. It goes without saying there isn't a syllable of truth in this absurd fandangle. Where's your evidence, eh?
1: My evidence, Sir Charles is in the Hiverton County Asylum. Gladys Mary Mugg, the wife of Charles Mugg, your lawful wedded wife.
15: Is... is this true? Is this really true, Monsieur Poirot?
1: It is true, Mademoiselle.
5: (laughs) God damn you, Poirot! God damn! You! He'll escape!
1: No, no. He will only choose his exit. Oh, the slow one before the eyes of the world, or the quick one off
12: stage.
11: Oliver, take me home, please. Yeah, of
12: course. We well, are trembling. Will you be all right?
11: Mm, I'll be all right. Stay with me, Oliver.
12: Be very good to her. I will. You know that. Good night, Monsieur Poirot. Thank you.
3: My dear Poirot, you have been wonderful. Absolutely wonderful.
1: Which is nothing. A tragedy in three acts.
3: And now the curtain has fallen. My my, my goodness, I've only just realized. That poison cocktail. Anyone could have drunk it. it. It might have been me.
1: Hmm. There is an even more terrible possibility that you have not considered.
3: And what is that?
1: It might have been me.
2: In Agatha Christie's three-act tragedy, Hercule Poirot was played by John Moffat, Mr Satterthwaite by George Cole, Sir Charles Cartwright, Michael Cochrane. Sir Bartholomew Strange, Clive Medicine Egg Gore, Beth Chalmers Lady Mary Gore, Pauline Jamieson Oliver Manders, Carl Prekop Muriel Wills, Elizabeth Proud Angela Sutcliffe, Gemma Churchill Captain Dakers, Nigel Anthony, Cynthia Dakers, Paula Jacobs The Reverend Stephen Babington, Peter Marinka Mrs. Babington, Patricia Scott Colonel Johnson, John Baddeley. Superintendent Crossfield, Martin Hyder. Mrs. Leckie, Kathleen Helm. Miss Milray, Helen Longworth. Doris, the model, Angela Sims. The matron, Natasha Pine. The little boy, Tom Glenister.